It's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Freezer Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini. And we got something special today. It's Dragon ball And as we do on Dragon ball we don't discuss Dragon Ball. Because <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, but no, we name. <laughs> we decided early on when we were doing this that our celebration of the festive, our favorite festive time of the year being Halloween would be to take the opportunity to play on one of the aspects of October and Halloween and that being costumes and in the vein of costumes and dressing up and being things that you're not and things like that. We take the month to look at things that Dragon Ball people, either behind the scenes or in front of the microphone talent, worked on that were not Dragon Ball. So in the past, we've looked at Don Dracula, and we've talked about a Godzilla movie because that inspired Kira Toriyama. And today, we are going to be doing a commentary on what has been called Akira Toriyama's favorite movie. And I think, Bikini, you you might agree with me here, that of the, like, ten movies that have been listed as Akira Toriyama's favorites, this one is actually probably his favorite. Yeah, and I can see why. This is this is a pretty good movie, even by my standards. So, so, yeah. so to, get us, to get us into talking about this movie, we've actually... We've already made our call out to a friend. We have a friend joining us today with us from the Failure to Franchise podcast, as well as Days of Future podcast, examining the X-Men, is our friend Trev. Yeah, buddy. You can't believe it's taken this long to get me on your Dragon Ball podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yes, Trev, Trev is here from... I, I feel like primarily the failure to franchise podcast at this point yeah. it's days of future podcast dips in and out but failure to franchise is is regular 
Baylor franchise is, is running strong. Days of Future podcast is it's becoming more of a seasonal podcast uh, because of life events and everything. But we're you know we'll, we'll, it's there's plenty of backlog people can go back and listen to if they want to hear me talk about the X Men. But yeah, and also just feel that a franchise is, is more of a movie podcast. And today we're doing a movie, so yeah, I'll represent that show today. Yeah, and and for I've mentioned this podcast before in the past, but for those who are joining us for the first time, Failure to Franchise is they they take a look at. They call it Hollywood's Biggest Mistakes, Missteps, and Misfires. They talk about a movie that, for one reason or another, was supposed to kick off a franchise either at the moment or actually even after the fact, and then, for one reason or another, did not. So every once in a while, actually, they'll look at a movie that was financially successful, and people afterwards said, hey, we should make a franchise out of this, and then, for rights reasons or whatever, it didn't happen. But generally, they're looking at, you know, your your pretty infamous bombs of the world. Right now, when this episode's coming out, they'll be rounding out their DCPU. <laughs> yeah, a decade-by-decade look at the failed uh, DC failed like franchise starters. So we looked at Supergirl in the 80s, uh, Steel in the 90s, uh, Superman Returns, up to, you know, doing like, oh, then Green Lantern, and then up to Black Adam and The Flash. I love that you're doing the Flash, even though it came out this year. <laughs> yeah, I know. We like we're we're calling our shot on that one. We're pretty confident about this one. You know, maybe maybe we'll have to like do, uh, you know put an apology out later, but a retraction. I, I don't think so. I think I think it's a safe bet. <laughs> and so usually when we bring someone onto this podcast, like we brought on Derek Padula, the author of the Dragon Ball Culture books that we are borrowing pretty heavily from for our regular episodes. We brought on Matt from the Kaiju Transmissions podcast, and we even briefly had Bird on. We usually ask people, what's your what's your history with Dragon Ball, and what made you be a fan of Dragon Ball? But I'm going to not do that because I don't want people to turn off this podcast. <laughs> hey, I can tell you my history with Dragon Ball. I, and I'll look, I'm going to be fair. What Jelly's alluding to is I'm not the biggest Dragon Ball fan in the world, okay? Like, it's just it's just not my thing. Um, to be fair, I'm not, like, a huge anime manga fan in general. There's certainly definitely ones I'm really into. Like, I mean, I am I was born in 80. I definitely grew up with, like, that initial uh, anime boom here. I love Akira. Akira's still one of my favorite movies of all time. Love Cowboy Bebop. I'm kind of, I know I'm naming, like, the obvious ones. But it's just, it's not an overall genre that ever got into me. And I tried with Dragon Ball. I've tried. I'll talk maybe during this commentary about what exactly i don't respond to necessarily with it but i'm keeping an open mind why you called me in obviously is not for that connection correct we we called trev in and we'll we'll talk about this more when we get into it but the main reason we called trev in is because the movie we're looking at today akira toriyama's all-time favorite movie drunken boxer stars what trev has called his i want to make sure i get the phrasing on this exactly right because i know you make the (laughs) distinction but yeah. your all-time favorite movie star? Yes. Trev's... Not my favorite. I don't say he's my favorite actor. I say he's my favorite movie star of all time. Trev's all-time favorite movie star, none other than Jackie Chan. And we'll, I'm sure, get into that. But yes, that's the whole reason Trev is here. That and I'm sure you probably have a history with this movie. This is my mm-hmm. third. This is going to be my third time ever watching this. This is going to be Bikini's second second yeah uh, we both did our prep in in preparation for this and then i sure. have seen it once like a decade ago 
and that's it. So we wanted someone who's familiar with the movie that, you know, as we go through and we've got tons of notes and things to talk about can maybe correct us if we make any faux pas or missteps, but also just someone who has familiarity with Jackie Chan and yeah. is, a, is a big fan and can can help us out with with any of that kind of stuff, too. So that's the reason Trev is here is, is it's, it's not because he is a gigantic fan of the 23rd Tenkaichi Budokai. Oh, yeah, I get that reference. I what he's talking about. <laughs> um, so well, one thing I will, I'll tell you right now, one thing I will not be correcting you guys on is any pronunciations of the people who are not Jackie Chan's names. Uh, I've, you know, I, I'm a huge, so beyond just being a fan of Jackie Chan, uh, Jelly also knows, I'm sure it also plays into me being here. I'm just a huge Kung Fu movie guy in general. It's one of my favorite genres. I, am, I, I don't want to call myself like the most, I'm not the most, um, you know, expert studied person about it, but I, I watch a lot of Kung Fu movies uh, of all decades. But even despite that, even reading multiple books on like Kung Fu movies, martial arts movies, being a huge fan of it, knowing a lot of these actors, but I, you can recognize them. I've, I'm terrible at pronouncing names. So I apologize in advance for that. That goes. We usually have to give that same apology most episodes. <laughs> so that goes across. Our streak remains unbroken. Everything we do pretty much is. Uh, we say it all the time. Neither one of us is even a non-native speaker of Chinese or Japanese, which all of these names are, or even like terms that we throw out a lot of times are either derived from, or if they're not derived from one of those two, they're derived from like Hindi, which we also don't speak. So yes, we do our best and we'll sometimes just pronounce things in like two or three different ways and, and hope one of them's right. Yeah. But so, yeah, I have my movie, and I have it queued up around, like, I think the 28-second mark. It's basically when the, uh, what was the name of the, the company? Seasonal Film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's when the Seasonal Film Corporation logo, like, fades out. I just, yeah, I just assumed that would be the safest spot to start at, because if... This movie is available, like, it's on Pluto, although I probably wouldn't suggest watching it on Pluto if you're watching it with this, because it will have ads. It's available on, like, Internet Archive. It's available on YouTube. I watched it on YouTube, and it said free with ads, and then I didn't have a single ad throughout the entirety of my watch. And then I'm sure there's probably, I know, and we have some notes on it later, there's, like, three or four different dvd and blu-ray releases of this because of some translation stuff some dub stuff things like that so i want to i want to play it very safe on where people can try and queue up with us and as goes with all of our commentaries we don't stay super screen specific we do feel free to interrupt people as we're talking through our notes and talking about things, and we will point out things in terms of being screen specific, but we just have notes. We're talking to them and we will talk to the screen at times, but like this is what this is. And I'll I'll get this out of the way too, for people who have stuck with us for this long. If you're a huge, huge fan of this movie already, and you're hoping to learn some new things, maybe not the podcast for you. You might get some new perspectives from a couple of newbies and maybe a, a longtime fan, but you're probably not going to find out 
something that you've never heard before because yeah, this is the Frank Jen commentary. <laughs> uh, he's the guy he does like the best martial arts commentaries on all like the Eureka and 88 films releases. We're not him. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we're just trying, we use, we use our whole podcast really as an opportunity to introduce people to a lot of these concepts and say, Hey, if that piques your interest, go learn about more of it from there. So I'm at the 28. Can you imagine mark. trying to do just a scene? Can you imagine just trying to do like a screen specific commentary to this movie? Three like martial arts enthusiasts, but not experts. There'd be like 20 minute spans where they're just like, there's another kick. And there's a punch. <laughs> you, you could do it like a, like a wrestling commentary almost, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> that actually um, might be pretty entertaining. <laughs> But so, yeah, I'm at that 28-second mark. The the seasonal film logo has just about faded into nothingness where I am. Uh, if everyone else is queued up there, grab your remote, grab your mouse, grab your game controller, whatever you have. I will say one, two, three, go. On go, press play, and we'll take it from there and, and get into the commentary. Everyone ready on our side? Yep. I'm good to go. And hopefully all our listeners are ready in one, two, three, go. And the movie just kind of gets started right away. Uh, so, originally released in Hong Kong in Oct- on October 5th, 1978, is Drunken Master. And this was right at the beginning of Akira Toriyama's manga career. And by this point... He had been contacted by Kazuhiko Torishima to start sending submissions in and was on the cusp of getting his first publishing credit, which would happen in December of that year. So this is even before Dr. Slump. This is even before, uh, what was it, Wonder Island that, that he would get published that wound up not being popular. But this is much before Dragon Ball. It's directed by Wen Yen Wuping, who might be most well-known to Western fans as the fight choreographer for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and also the Matrix trilogy. That's probably, I would think, his biggest claim to fame, is when you say the guy who did the fight choreographer for the Matrix, that kind of revolutionized the film industry and the way things were were shot and choreographed during that time. That's Yen Wuping. It's co-written by Xiao Lung, who was also the assistant director, and he often worked with Wen Yan Yuping as well as the the other co-writer was Eng Si Yuan, who's a notable Hong Kong film writer and producer who became among the first to find success outside of either Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest. And we talked about Golden Harvest as being the inspiration behind the introductory parts of the 21st uh, Tenkaichi Budokai, where they had like the the logo come up, and it comes up in exactly the Golden Harvest format. He helped Jackie Chan earn his real bo- first real box office successes, and he's at least partially credited with helping to launch the career of Jean-Claude Van Damme by casting him in the role of the antagonist in a film called no retreat, no surrender. Trev, Trev, have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's a fun movie. It's it's strange to watch it now because obviously it's you know Jean Claude Van Damme in a villain role. Um, not that he hasn't played villains since, but it's just it's like, as an, a young, very young Van Damme, not saying much, just kind of an antagonist. 
but it's you can watch it and definitely see like that charisma come off the screen right away and you can get why people are like oh there might be something here also although it is funny that his first claim to fame is jackie chan and then his second is jean-claude van damme now i love van damme (laughs) but that's that's a little bit of a difference there also hypest opening credits i think i've ever seen in a movie this This movie gets like it gets just right starts off it. with a murder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're watching a great Kung Fu movie when the, the movie just literally starts with one man walking up to another and going like, I've been sent to kill you and the fight starting. And then already we get like the, my name is Thunderlegs. It's like, Oh, I've heard of you. Thunderlegs, the man with the deadly legs, you know, and like, this is, this is what we watch these for. Absolutely. And this movie was a, a, Massive success. It actually it earned close to 17 million U.S. dollars at the box office. It was considered a massive success. It took in three times as much as Wu Ping's previous film, Snake in the Eagle's Shadow, which was also considered a success. So he had this movie. It was considered a big success in Hong Kong. And then this one was three times bigger than that. Together with... Snake and Eagle's Shadow in the Eagle's Shadow and Drunken Mastered are considered the two movies that launched Jackie Chan to stardom and helped pave the way for his specific style of slapstick action. Because prior to this, and even in the immediate wake of this, it's all everyone trying to emulate Bruce Lee. And we'll talk about that even more with 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 Jackie Chan and his career start, he starts his career as a stuntman for Bruce Lee, but his first starring roles are in those, were they called Lee Sploitation? Bruce Sploitation. Bruce Sploitation, yeah. His, his first starring roles are in those Bruce Sploitation movies, which, if you're not familiar with those, but you are familiar with Bruce Lee himself, if you've ever seen Game of Death, Game of Death is basically a Bruce Bloitation movie where well, Game of Death 2 is definitely a Bruce movie. <laughs> where they would cast someone who looks roughly like Bruce Lee and basically just pretend that he was. There's a documentary in the works right now. I can't remember if it's finished. It might be I think it's playing at some film festivals right now that's all about the entire Bruce Bloitation fad and I'm I'm so looking forward to that documentary. It's something I'm fascinated with. There's a little mini like a uh, featurette about that on the Bruce Lee Criterion set talking about it but yeah after bruce lee's death like the, the martial arts industry was suddenly left with a, a huge gap to fill and it would be you know they thought he's gonna be the next big megastar so anybody that like you said had a passing resemblance or sometimes not even but if they they could sell it some way so then you had bruce lie bruce lee but lee spelled you know slightly differently uh dragon lee there was i mean there's like dozens of these and jackie was lumped into that unfortunately probably because he co-starred with bruce lee in a couple of his movies really brief appearances but he had that connection already. Yeah, and they thought uh, that he could like mimic Bruce Lee's style. Yeah, and it, yeah, it you wasn't really quick. Oh, go ahead. I was just say it wasn't until these these two movies, this Snake in the Eagle Shadow and Drunken yeah. Master, that someone let him try something. He he constantly was saying during those early movies, "That's not my style. It's not my style." Right. And someone finally was like, "Hey, well, what if we?" what is your style and let's try and do something in your style. You mentioned that those two movies are kind of known as the movies that finally helped launch him into, you know, superstardom. But I will also say they're known at least to me as almost the exact same movie. <laughs> have either of you guys <laughs> seen snake and Eagle shadow? I have not. I have not. 
it's really similar to this. I mean, this is like it. This is like it perfected because like they had, you know, it's their second go around at it. But this is obviously something that happened. We were like, what we we're just talking about is proof of that. They would definitely get into trends in the martial arts genre at this time. And if one movie worked, the the next movie they would try wouldn't be too different. And so those two movies are, you know, the characters seem very similar, and just the overall themes of the movies are very similar. And this fight scene that we've got going on right here with this, this is a very slapstick kind of fight scene where they're fighting it's but it's you know taking a a hat off a guy's head and and flipping him around things like that this is what i would call like it we haven't gotten this kind of fighting on failure or on final forum just yet but this is going to be like when we get to mr popo that's the kind of fight that he has with goku where it's just like play fighting it's also going to be like a lot of what king kai ultimately does in dragon ball z like you you will see if you pay attention to this and especially even just the choreography of things you'll see the dna of dragon ball all throughout this movie big time absolutely and that fight must have been at the yeah and at the time that fight must have been like so revolutionary for martial arts audiences too because they weren't used to seeing not only the slapstick but even the moments before the fight when we see um, Jackie as Wang Fei Hung just in a you know a training seminar and kind of goofing off, that was a new kind of character for this genre. So everyone had so like the heroes had always been stoic and very good students, and that was Jackie's big revolutionary thing. I know we're going to talk more about this, but it's it's worth saying that this movie doesn't waste any time. Just like we said, it doesn't waste any time getting into the action. It also wasted no time establishing what makes Jackie different than all the other stars in this genre. Oh, he's a he's a goof off. He's kind of a you know a young dick, and then his fights are a little bit more comedic. Right. Uh, the movie was extremely popular. It went on to spawn a sequel, Drunken Master Two, and several spinoffs featuring the Beggar So character, who we'll meet in a minute, as well as dozens of if not hundreds at this point, right? It was 2023 of ripoffs, imitators and homages, multiple, multiple different like reputable websites and magazines have listed it as one of the best or most influential Hong Kong films of all time, including games radar, naming it the third best martial arts film of all time and variety, naming it the third best Hong Kong film action or otherwise of all time. And so as for why we are talking about it on our Dragon Ball podcast, as I've mentioned, it's notably one of Akira Toriyama's absolute favorite movies, so much so that he was known to watch it while writing and drawing during his time working on Dr. Slump, and a practice that so baffled his wife that she mentioned the oddity of it to his editor, Kazuhiko Torishima, during a brainstorming session when they were trying to figure out what to do as Toriyama's follow-up to Dr. Slump. Torishima then is just like so piqued with interest by this. He says, if Toriyama loves Kung Fu comedy so much, that should be his next manga. He should do something like this. And thus the seeds behind the idea of Dragon Ball were planted. Interestingly, though, it takes Toriyama kind of a while to get to like slapstick action because he kind of said he didn't want to just mimic this. It's not until Torishima really starts pushing him and saying, hey, you liked this thing, just do that thing <laughs> that he starts doing more of it. Uh, additionally, in, in addition to that being a reason why we're talking about it, Akira Toriyama has said multiple times that his ideal casting choice for Goku would be a young Jackie Chan. 
And then there's also, during the 21st Tenkaichi Budokai, there is the character Jackie Chun, who fights in a drunken boxer style of fighting known as Drunken Monkey. And then Goku is based off of the Monkey King's son Wukong from the classic novel Journey to the West. So we have all kinds of interesting parallels with all of this, with drunken boxing and drunken monkey and we'll point those out at various points and scenes along we've already kind of mentioned some of them along the way here but we'll we'll point out more as we come across them but but yeah uh toriyama loves this movie loves jackie chan and you could see even in this movie where his character is not exactly goku's type for sure he's a little he's he's got that that same kind of like cheekiness to him a little bit yes he he definitely has that like lack of refinement to him and that that great comedic timing but he is certainly more of a dick than goku is <laughs> it's weird the toriyama that says that he sees goku as like a young jackie chan i don't know i know i don't know much about the character but if i had to pick someone i don't know it's still, he feels like he strikes me like a young justin chatwin kind of. <laughs> <laughs> nice do you think we one of the talk. things that Toriyama liked about this movie so much was the scene where Wang Fei-hung uh, sexually assaults his cousin? <laughs> that's that's possible. That's probably where he pulled inspiration for Roshi from. Uh, so I, I do have some notes here about uh, production history of the film. The film was produced by Seasonal Film Corporation, who was, for a time, uh, known in the same breath as Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest, who are like the two major Hong Kong film distributors. We've discussed on the podcast how Golden Harvest's opening logo, like we mentioned earlier, the opening logo for their films inspired the anime staff at Toei to use a very similar opening for the tournament arcs uh, in Dragon Ball. Um, Seasonal Film Corporation was sort of a spinoff of Shaw Brothers. Ung Si-yun, the writer and producer of Drunken Master, founded Seasonal Film Corporation, which started as an extremely low-budget studio specializing in uh like we were talking about earlier the bruce exploitation that would typically star like you guys said uh lookalikes or or people with badly spelled names that were sort of approximate um ung was uh, familiar with chan due to his minor roles in some actual uh lee films as we mentioned earlier and from director low Wei's attempts to make chan into the next bruce lee uh, the films like New Fist of Fury. Oh, sorry. Hold on. I said that wrong. Um, yeah, so. He sorry, just I'm... he was familiar with Jackie Chan already from from like. He was he was in Jackie Chan was in Enter the Dragon. I think that's where one of his more prominent kind of on-screen roles came and then also he was he he was in these low way movies the most notable of which was called new fist of fury which okay bruce lee was fist of fury right so it's funny that you call like enter the dragon one of his more prominent like roles at that point because i mean i know what you mean because it's into the dragon but he literally just like runs in and gets his neck snapped by bruce lee <laughs> um and then in another one, I think, I can't remember which, I think it is Fist of Fury is the other Bruce Lee movies in where Bruce Lee just kicks him through a wall. Um, but he was, he, he definitely knew Bruce. They were, they were friendly, but yeah, he was kind of a glorified extra in those movies. But yeah, the story goes the low way. Um, I don't think this is in the notes. So like I, the story goes low way, found Jackie Chan 
by going to some other production where Jackie Chan was working as a, as like a stuntman and doing some of the, like the, the doubling. And there was an actor who could not get like, he was, they, there was a scene the actor was supposed to die and the actor just like could not do it convincingly. And Jackie kind of stepped up and said, I know how to do that. I know how to film a scene where you die. And Lil Wei was impressed by him there and saw something. And was like, oh, I, he looks like he could be another Bruce Lee. And so, as you mentioned, that set Lil Wei into a long uh, run of trying. He signed Jackie right away to like this multi-picture deal, tried to like, you know, keep making him a star and they kept failing. Yeah. Okay. I found my, I found my place here. <laughs> So Ung Sion uh, decided to attempt to cash in on Jan, uh, Chan's very mild popularity uh, along with a pivot in tone to something more fun and wound up striking gold. Due to the success of Snake and Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master, uh, Seasonal Film Corporation wound up being one of Hong Kong's largest independent filmmaking companies throughout much of the 1980s. And on a bit into the 1990s uh, before popularity started to wane and then the company ultimately officially became defunct in 2008. Aside from Jackie Chan, they really are known more for the the Bruce exploitation movies than anything else. Through Sui Hark, who directed a film we've discussed called uh, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain. That movie uh, is girls. awesome. I've mentioned that yeah. before. I have it, not seen it, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Choi Hark and Choi Hark in general is a, a fantastic director. He always brings such like a wild visual style to his stuff, and just a really like fun kinetic energy. But yeah, that that movie in particular is is awesome. Oh, it's pronounced Choi. I <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, again, <laughs> we're, we're, <both> <laughs> we, we're trying our best. Um, but Hark even enjoyed uh, a very brief Hollywood career, directing the Jean-Claude Van Damme films Knock Off and Double Team, which co-starred Dennis Rodman. Double Team also rules there. in a different way than Zoo Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, Corey Yoon started his career with Seasonal Film Corporation, who's another prolific uh, filmmaker whose career spans dozens of titles as both an actor and a director, and helped launch the careers of uh, Cynthia Rothrick, and Michelle Yeoh with the film Yes, Madam. Yoon became a successful second unit director in America, doing the action sequences for films such as Lethal Weapon 4, Romeo Must Die, The Transporter, and even the first X-Men film. Uh, he's also played an antagonist in the film Zoo Warriors for the Magic Mountain. I've seen Yes, Madam, I think on a recommendation from Trev many yeah. Yeah, that movie rules. Um, though that like early run of like, well, the Michelle Yeoh like early run is great, but the in the line of fire or in the line sorry in the line of duty series, the first two Royal Warriors and then Yes Madam are two great Michelle Yeoh showcases. And Yes Madam ends with this incredible fight sequence with Rothrock and Yeoh taking on this team of bad guys in this, uh, of course, glass filled atrium because everything has to be glass. <laughs> but yeah, that's a that's a really that's like one of my favorite uh, of, like '80s martial arts movies. It's really so good. It's a lot of fun. A, yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about just Jackie Chan in general. Um, and you guys were kind enough to kind of give me some notes to kind of feed along. And I'm going to read, I'm going to go off of those, but I'm going to kind of bump in with some like just stuff I kind of know too that I wanted to add in. In particular, I actually want to start slightly differently. I will say Jackie Chan, who's obviously the man of the hour for us, the star of the show. And as Jelly was kind enough to point out, my favorite movie star. And I'll talk about why that is later. But uh, he was born in Hong Kong in April of 1954 and has been acting since the 60s, at this point having over 150 film credits to his name. I think what is really important to talk about before we even get into him as like movie star and like in, in later in life is actually his childhood. Because it's very, very interesting and it feeds into some of what they're going for in this movie, even what a lot of these martial arts movies at the time are going for. It's important to know that his childhood is kind of heavily influenced by his involvement in the Peking Opera. 
Have you guys had any like reason or need to talk about the Peking Opera on this podcast yet? We I haven't. Don't think the I did has come up. <laughs> I did see some of that, like not only from him, but from his dad, mm-hmm. who got him into acting and the Peking Opera in the first place. Yeah, and that's is it, like was Jet Li also? Uh, I, I maybe Jet Li maybe, but I'll tell you what, because there I, maybe this is what you saw. So Peking Opera, just as a quick explanation of what it is, because you know obviously to Western audiences it just don't have the familiarity with it. Peking Opera actually started in the Ming Dynasty. And unlike, you know, just traditional opera, as Western audiences would know it, and European opera, it does have the, the musical element to it, and there's dance in it, but it also has these very extravagant costumes, bright makeup, gymnastics, and both um, open, or sorry, both weapon and empty-handed combat. So the actors were trained in all of that. And because that was, a, you know, pretty heavy skill set, typically they would get very young kids and train them in these peaking opera schools. And so a lot of like the Peking Opera, but it's like at a certain point, the Peking Opera is, you know, would travel around Hong Kong and China and people go see his productions. And then film comes along and film starts making Peking Opera not completely relevant, but obviously it's taking a lot of thunder from it. But the Peking Opera performers realize, well, maybe we can make the jump into film. And it's when the martial arts genre is taking off. And hey, they have this training that seems to lead, lead them into the martial arts world. Kind of works out perfectly, right? So the Peking Opera actually produced several generations of filmmakers and the most important school, like probably in retrospect, uh, this Peking Opera School in Hong Kong was from a Sifu named Yu, Yim, sorry, Yu Jim Yun. Uh, again, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. But he is probably today thought of as like the most famous Peking Opera instructor simply because he was the, uh, the leader of the Seven Little Fortunes. And the Seven Little Fortunes was actually a group of 14 kids. I don't know. Don't ask me. <laughs> They're called the Seven Little Fortunes, 14 <laughs> kids, and notably... Three of the students in the Seven Little Fortunes were Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and Yun Biao. And those three go on to be this, like, you know, during Jackie Chan's early formative days, that's a trio that everyone knows. Sammo Hung obviously goes on to be arguably the second most important person in martial arts, uh, you know, Hong Kong martial arts throughout the 80s and 90s uh, after Jackie. If not, maybe arguably even maybe more important than Jackie to at least international audiences in terms of the filmmaking aspect. So they were together. And the reason Jackie was in this school is um, you said his dad got him into it. That's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it into it is he was basically sold to the Peking <laughs> Opera, which is what the case was for many oh. children. On his, seven, on his seventh birthday, the, the school gave his parents a sum of money to basically take him and put him into the school. And then they are, they are like raised in the school. They live there. It's very Dickensian. You can find interviews with Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung talking about how awful it was because they had to follow this like uh, it was a 10 year training course. And for 10 years, they were basically put through the same kind of rigorous training we will see in this movie. You know, the idea of do this all day, you know, uh, this very intense physical training. Uh, if you do like the slice and fraction, you're punished. And so during that, of course, the kids grow really close, in particular those three. Um, and all of them kind of end up getting into film as they go along. So I wanted to point out that that's I think that's a really important aspect of his childhood, because I think anytime you're watching one of these Kung Fu movies and you get into these like long training sequences, I think they're kind of like reliving what they went through as kids in the Peking Opera. And also just like the fights. Jackie wouldn't have these skills if not for that. The sad byproduct of that is a lot of them graduated from Peking Opera schools. The Peking Opera was like they called it a school, but they're only worried about making them performers. I believe Jackie and others, when they graduated, they didn't know how to read or write. They just knew how to do gymnastics and, you know, take stunt falls and dance, you know, and sing. But they never had basic academic skills. So I think it took him a little bit uh, as he got into being a young businessman to kind of catch up with where he should have been. 
So Sam I, I just want to throw that in because Sam Hung was the one I was thinking of, by the way, not Jeff yeah. at all. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, like he does, you know, survive that experience. Thankfully, he comes out of it with you know great friends. He'll continue to work with for time, and you know he has the expertise now, and that helps him become ultimately. Uh, you know, one of the most popular action film stars of all time. He's been recognized with honors, awards, and countries all around the globe. I know he received an honorary Academy Award, I believe, a few years ago, finally. Referenced in all kinds of pop culture, his own American cartoon series, right, comic books, toys. Um, he's been called by film scholars the most recognized like, film star in the world, certainly in a live action sense. And that might seem kind of surprising to American audiences of a certain age, maybe, because his stardom here was a little bit delayed, but you have to remember that before he became a star here, a couple decades of being one of the biggest stars in the rest of the world. So as uh, we've already kind of alluded to, he did, you know, more or less, he, he was a child actor while he was in the Peking Opera. They would loan him out to certain productions and you can find like young Jackie Chan in the background or, in, you know, individual scenes of some films making no kind of impression. And I will say, too, sometimes when you see young Jackie Chan, you might not even realize it because he looks very different in both this film and anything beyond than he does in a lot of his early stuff. And this is another thing I don't know if you guys know about. That's because in 1977, he actually had an eye-opening operation, which was actually very, very common for uh, Hong Kong actors at the time. And I, it's one of those things where I kind of get, like, bummed out when I talk about this because, you know, it's like you realize they were doing it because the thought was – we want your eyes to be more wide and expressive for the international market. It'll make you more handsome to international audiences. So it's a thing that a lot of, you know, Chinese actors put themselves through, uh, Cantonese actors at the time. That's wild because I, yeah, that's I was kind of thinking that of like, boy, in addition to just looking so young, right? Because mm -hmm. he, he just he just is so young in this. There's something I can't put my finger on about. He looks. So different. Well, he, he's already had the operation at this point, but it's like not long after it. So you might still be seeing, you know, and I don't know if he's had additional stuff done or if it's like he's gone back and had it redone or whatever. But yeah, he does look different here. He's I think it is like a lot of the, just the youngness, uh, not a super flattering haircut. Yeah. But certainly if you like, <laughs> look true. up pictures of some of his like very early films, you'll you'll see a very striking difference because there are some that were before the operation as well. Actually, he his first lead role ever um, was in a 1973 movie called Cub Tiger of Canton, which at the time was just, they they filmed the whole thing. This was going to be the initial movie that was supposed to make him a star, and it was so bad they decided not to release it, hmm. and it sat on the shelf forever. And then once he became a bigger star later, they some you know unscrupulous producer took it, filmed some more sequences with other actors, mixed it around, and they re-released it as a movie called Master with Cracked Fingers, and it was like one of those like. Jackie Chan movies that you'd never heard of that you could always find in like cheap multi-packs, you know, VHSs <laughs> when the whole like Jackie Chan American boom first started. And it's, it is terrible. It's a, like they didn't save it, you know, they just released it. It's, it's bad. And but it, just to, just ahead. to break in real quick, this, mm -hmm. this right here, what we're seeing, this is a scene yes. that is in addition to being peaking opera, like you were saying, this is very Dragon Ball. This is a thing that happens in Dragon Ball all the time where a character or multiple characters has to undergo something that just on the face of it seems kind of menial. Like you could say, oh, for your first training, you're going to have to balance hot water and people be like, that's nothing. But then you find out that it's over a stick that if you relax, will poke you in the butt and you're trying to balance 
five cups at the same time and while also wearing weighted rings on your wrists and if you know any of them spill on you it'll burn because it's hot water and then also the guy who's administering the training is going to be doing everything he can to make you drop that water that's a this is a very dragon ball thing we we have seen this on our show already with goku's training with delivering milk they have to deliver milk and, and plow they, the farm fields with their hands and they're running everywhere. Yes. All and, within the course of one day. <laughs> yes. And they're being chased by sharks and dinosaurs. And like it sounds like a menial thing. Oh, let's go deliver the milk. But then it's insane. And that's this is balancing some cups seems menial, but it is insane. And with the extra context now of, of knowing that these actors went through this as, as children puts a whole new spin on this now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you cut in because actually I want to talk to us a little bit more about this scene and I don't want to keep like hitting, like banging this, this drum. But again, you have to understand too, that this is like, this is a type of scene audiences of the time, Kung Fu audiences of the time would have been very, very familiar with, but Jackie is just doing it a completely different way. Right. So a couple of things about that, obviously these kind of training sequences and this intense physical training, this like this repetition based or stay in a pose, there's like some martial arts movies that are just 90% that. That was almost a subgenre of its own. Like the martial arts movies that were heavily just the, watching them train because people are kind of fascinated by that. But the training was always very, very serious. And so here you have Jackie again. Like what he's going through is obviously horrible. It's like you, it's hard to imagine. It's a very, it's a physical extreme. But Jackie makes sure to make the scene funny by the addition of his friend sneaking him a chair that people can't see. So he's actually bouncing on that. The fact that the guy who's, you know, looking over him has that crazy hairy mole and he's just like a very like slapsticky character. And then the other thing that's just very different about it. And again, I know I brought this up before, but Jackie as the main character, he kind of deserves this punishment. And I think that was different for the hero of the movie at this time too. In the, in the previous movies, the people would have seen this, the, the hero is either like willingly going through this kind of training or, you know, they're just doing it because it's expected of them. Here we have punishment-based training that he has basically asked for. He's been a little shit up until this point. You know, he forced a kiss on his cousin. <laughs> he lied to his dad. He's, he, you know, he's just a, a young little ruffian. And that was they, a different kind of They didn't kind of consider character. kissing the cousin punishment enough? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it's funny because, you know, we're past the scene. But that that guy, by the way, just another another dragon ball thing bikini did you pick up on the the little red dot on the top yes. of that dude's hat yes it's very very crane hermit-esque and even bit. the character looks a little bit like a little it's got similar facial hair to well at least half of it i guess <laughs> but yeah it's it's it is the the punishment based training which that is that is the part where that doesn't really echo Probably anything we've ever specifically seen from Goku, really. I don't think he's ever been punished because he doesn't I, cheat. I, like, I see some with parallels his... with Krillin a little bit, but like Krillin wasn't punished for doing that stuff. Right. But it is still like very similar, like repetition, do it all day. It seems menial for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is something we'll talk more about as the movie goes along, but we're also in this scene and in the previous scene, seeing, again, one of the major things that made Jackie stand out and feel different than the other, uh, you know, martial arts stars of the time. And this is something that's always talked about with him. 
is that we see him being exhausted and getting hurt and sometimes being bad at what he's doing. And again, that's something that was not the norm. Heroes were ultra heroic before this. You know, they they would, like I said, it usually wasn't even punishment based. They would go through the training and it would be hard, but they would take it stoically. And Jackie, is, uh, you know, his version of Wong Fei Hong is trying to cheat his way out of it. We see him like have his friend get himself out of it. And afterwards, he's like rubbing his wrists and talking about how hurt he is. Later in his fights, we'll see him get thrashed and kind of get beat up a lot. This is this is what Jackie wanted to do differently than everyone else. This is what he he looked at the marketplace. Um, so he's, I mean, we like this is a good time to talk about. We had, we already alluded to this. And sorry if this some of this might double up on things we said. But after these initial attempts to make him into a star, he starts to really begin his like film career in earnest as an extra and stunt double uh, in martial arts movies. So you know he's he's kind of just a side player and they said he works bruce lee and fist of fury and into the dragon when he first gets tapped for the starring roles it's from low way so low way is a director who had also made directed a couple of the the bruce lee movies but famously had a big falling out with bruce lee so he like he kind of lost his connection to bruce lee before enter the dragon and obviously bruce lee's life tragically ends shortly after that anyways but low low way like thought he had like the next big megastar and then lost him so then he said well i gotta get the next one and then he gets jackie chan and then but he makes a mistake again right he, he kind of tries to make jackie into bruce lee as they were doing with a lot of stars at the time casts him in a lot of different things puts him as a villain in a movie called killer meteors that's a an interesting movie i won't call it a good one um <laughs> but movies like uh shaolin wooden men and all these like you know just you know, lame Bruce Lee wannabe movies, and it's just not really working. So he definitely, like, Lo Wei thought of Chan as a potential star that he discovered, but he just, he, he was just kind of telling him what to do, right? Just do what I tell you. I'm, I've made all these Kung Fu movies before. Just mimic Bruce Lee. And he was just like, he thought that would be fine. He signed this multi-picture deal, and Jackie was, like, never really happy with it. And all his movies were released. You know, he's, I guess his name got out there but they certainly weren't burning up the box office by any means. And, and Jackie has definitely talked over the years and yes, I can call him Jackie. I'm on a first name basis. All right. Um, <laughs> he's, he's admitted over the years that he was never comfortable making these movies. He never liked mimicking Bruce Lee's style. And that's what I wanted to allude to here is he was able to look at the marketplace and say, what are, what did Bruce Lee do? And what are all the imitators doing that I could do differently? And he's always talked about, he's like, you know, when Bruce Lee goes high, I'll go low Bruce Lee would like punch someone and like it wouldn't even bother him. I'll punch someone and then pull my hand back and shake it and blow on the fist like I hurt myself. I will get beat up for most of my movie. That's what that's what Jackie saw. And so when he was finally given the opportunity, right, like Lo Wei kind of <laughs> falls asleep at the wheel and let's um uh sorry uh, Ing I Ing Siyun Ing Siyun yeah lets him kind of come in and give you know do some stuff with Jackie. Jackie's you know he's allowed to go in his more comedic direction and that's when we get snake and eagle shadow and drunken master and this scene just to just to break in because this is another Mm. like this is very dragon ball (laughs) this is extremely dragon ball this is where goku's eating style comes from is this sequence we first see it at the end of the 21st tenkaichi budokai where Mm -hmm. master roshi wins the tournament and wins is it five hundred thousand? Dollars. Something like that, yeah. It, it's either like 500000 or a million, and they call it zenny, but it's basically the same as dollars. It's just a f- fictional form of money. But Goku then eats that much money's worth of food after the tournament. And we're like, this is. This is that sequence exactly. This is how Goku eats, is like Jackie Chun in this, like a slob, like a maniac, and also just like packing it in. And then 
like once he has packed in so much food that like everyone else can't believe it, he's like, "Ah, oh, that was just enough." Yeah. This meal looks really good though, doesn't it? Like before, like the whole like nasty eating scene, it does look very appetizing. The noodles look awesome. <laughs> Even yeah. this bit here, where like lo- with like loosening the belt and having his belly pop out, is is peak Goku. So before I go on to what kind of comes after Jackie for this, I do want to tell a quick story that I think is fun if you guys will indulge me, because I think it's just the kind of, again, some like interesting like color about his background and, and sure. like, you know, this. So we know like Low Wise, when he's under Low Wise contract, Low Wise signed him to a contract, multi-picture deal. He pays him $400, an extra $400 for any $400 for any movie he completes. So he's not obviously not making bank. And then, as we know, as we said, uh, Loewe finally is just like sick of him, kind of. He still doesn't have a contract, but his movies aren't doing well. So he loans him out to Ing Se-yoon. And Ing Se-yoon makes Snake, Eagle, Shadow, and Drunken Master. Guess what? Those are hits. So now suddenly Loewe is like, oh, okay, I, I, I have him. But he's, you know, this, he doesn't want to just cede control of him. So he decides to lock him in again, right? He's like, well, I loaned you out for those two movies, but I need to lock him back in. So he doubles his salary. Uh, now he's, you know, he's double <laughs> salary, but he's still making not too much, right? And then finally in 1979, he just defies Loewe. He's sick of it. He's like, you know, he goes off of his contract and he makes a movie called Young Master for Golden Harvest. And that movie is a big hit. And now Golden Harvest wants him. Golden Harvest just wants to, to take over Jackie Chan's contract. The problem is Loewe does not want to give him up. And Jackie's kind of like working behind the scenes with some people to try and jump contracts, basically, and go over to Golden Harvest. And the reason I bring this up is this story is fascinating to me, is it turns into a whole big brouhaha because it turns out Lowe's financiers are the triads. And so there's suddenly Uh-oh. something very scary where <laughs> Jackie Chan's people are telling you, Jackie Chan has a friend who tells them, you need to be very, very careful about this going jumping over to Golden Harvest because you could end up like murdered. The triads are, are going to support Lowe's in this. And it gets very, very scary for a time. It gets very, very uh, rough between the two, between Loway and, and Golden Harvest. They're feuding over him. The triads are getting involved. And so they decide to call in to be like a mediator of this whole thing. And I don't know if this is a name that'll mean much to you guys, maybe, but uh, Jimmy Yang Yu. Jimmy Wang Yu is a, a, a famous martial arts star, uh, predates all of this. He was like one of the, um, you know, I, would, I wouldn't say his career was on the downside this time, but it was all maybe like heading towards being a little less relevant but he was the star of like one-armed boxer one-armed swordsman uh master of the flying guillotine he was kind of like royalty in the martial arts world already they bring him in to mediate the whole thing so he uh, sits down with Loway, golden harvest and the triads uh, apparently the first meeting is like very tense and almost ends in violence but finally after like another meeting it all gets worked out Harvest is able to take Jackie pull time. They give Loe some kind of like payment and the triads back off. And Jackie uh, lives, obviously, even though there was some questions about that at the time. He's, they, apparently he was very scared that he might not survive that whole thing because of his decision to try and get out of that. So I just thought that was a fun story you guys would want to hear. That's wild. That's, yeah. that's insane. And, and, <laughs> and for anyone out there who is listening to this, who doesn't know who the triads are very simply they are the the chinese mafia <laughs> yes yeah yep and that just shows you how like in demand he was as a star that like two companies wanted him so bad that the, one company was even willing to even say you know if you don't stick with me i'll just have the mafia kill you, you know? <laughs> um <laughs> but no so he but after this especially once he gets over to golden harvest he spends like the next decade plus becoming you know like because these stars launched this whole kung fu comedy craze 
and other actors tried to jump in. Some did, you know, Samuel Hung was really good at it, as we said, and some others, but Jackie was definitely still the king of it. Um, I forgot to mention the moment. Did you guys see the scene earlier when that waiter with the crazy teeth purposely tried to hold the mix? They almost fell out of his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> like covering his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but uh, so working that guy's together, not like doing uh, Chinese stereotypes any favors. Oh, no, not, not. at all. <laughs> I don't, I think there's more than one character that has bad teeth in this movie. If I remember right. <laughs> I mean, this movie is too. Like, this movie has a very interesting tone. I, like, that's a good t- point because this scene is a perfect time to talk about because we have the the buck tooth guy. Now we have gorilla on screen with the weird like chest hair. Um, <laughs> we're finally getting to to beggar. So this movie's tone is very weird in that it's mostly comedy, obviously, but it it seems to exist in a certain kind of reality. And then every once in a while, you'll get into these sequences where just we have like pure cartoon characters as characters now. And like gorilla and the waiter are definitely like great examples of that. And and even beggar so to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, going back to this again, cut in whenever you guys want. If anything comes up, that's like Dragon Ballish. That's that's interesting for me to hear that too, since I don't know about it. But uh, so once he makes that jump, and you know these two films hit, and then he does Young Master, and now he's with Golden Harvest together with Sammo Hung and Yun Biao. They make a series of films together, and he's just becoming the biggest star in martial arts. And in 1985, his status is just completely cemented with the release of the first Please Story movie which is just one of my all-time favorite films. Um, and that kind of sets him on a new path to where that's the first time, and this is why, you know, this, audiences today especially probably think of him more, um, not as like a traditional martial arts movie star, but a guy who plays in a lot of like modern martial arts movies. And that was his big thing, he said. Once he was given control and allowed to direct his own movies, he wanted to break away from this kind of movie that we were watching the more traditional, you know, wushu styled um, Shaw Brothers-esque kind of kung fu movies. So why don't we have it be like set in the modern day and, you know, incorporate elements of like cop stories and just make them more modern while upping the comedy. And then, of course, it also starts this penchant of performing very dangerous stunts. Please, stories filled with dangerous stunts. Now, I will say right now, if you were got into Jackie Chan like I did, or maybe a little later, uh, as an American audience member in the mid '90s, and bought into the hype that the studios, uh, the American studios, purposely put around him of Jackie Chan performs all his own stunts, uh, no, he does not. That has never <laughs> been true. That's not true at all. He does not perform all of his own stunts. However, I don't want. To, I'm not saying he's not impressive. The fact is, he performs way more of his stunts than any other movie star would. He does perform crazy stunts all the time. He obviously has been hurt a lot. He is braver than uh, you or I or anybody else I know and any other like Hollywood star I can think of or martial arts star. But he doesn't perform all his own stunts. You, the Blu-ray in particular has really put the lie to that statement because you can definitely <laughs> see him doubled in, in certain sequences. There are things that he will – he knows he – there are certain things he knows he can't do, so he will be doubled. And there are other just stunts where he will just – you know, it's not a big stunt or whatever, and he'll just let a stunt double take it. So I just wanted to clarify that, too, because that myth became so prevalent. But uh, but yeah, with like Police Story, he does do a lot of crazy stunts, and that starts it. And that movie goes on to win Best Film at the 1986 Hong Kong Film Awards. Now, I know we just had uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once win Best Picture at the Oscars, but remember how revolutionary that seemed? Just think of the idea of a movie like Police Story, an action kung fu comedy movie winning Best Film. You know, that just shows you how dominant this genre was in Hong Kong and how unstoppable of a force he was as a star, too, at that time. Because, like, we didn't, that would be like in 1986, like something like Predator winning or something. You know? 
Which it's yeah, true. and that's I mean, but. it is. I know like international academies tend tend to skew a little more what's popular in their country than the American Academy Awards. Like Shin Godzilla won the best picture in the Japanese Academy because it was the most popular movie of the year. That's like how the Japanese Academy works. That's how a lot of international academy work academies work, but at the same time, that does just go to show how much of a force Jackie mm. Chan was that he, you know, bursts onto the scene and then is winning best picture at at his country's like equivalent academy awards is yeah. It's it's similar. It it's it is it's like if Predator won, but it's like it's like similar to like when Lord of the Rings won, where even though that movie was super popular, you just felt like there was such a force around that movie that the Academy had no choice but but to make it like the best picture and, and give it all those awards. Yeah. Have you guys seen Police Story? Once, many, many, many years ago. I have not. Okay, add it to your list immediately. That's like, you know, that's... I will do. Uh, I'm due for a, a rewatch, for I think sure. it's a great starter Jackie Chan movie just in general. I mean, it's it's one of his, you know, top five movies for sure, if not top three, if not the best, some people will say. But I love the whole movie, but there have just been so many times in my life where I've just put on the last 15 minutes, which is the insane final battle in the in the mall, which culminates in one of his crazier stunts. And, and But just that entire thing is talk about glass shattering. Oh, my God. Um, but that, that entire last, like, 20 minutes is great. So we, you know, he's become a huge star. He has a string of big hits in the continuing in the '80s with movies like Armor of God, Project A. But these are all really big hits in Hong Kong and like you know the the Asian market. I, you notice I haven't said anything yet too much about his movies being hits in America, and that's because it, they're not. They're 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 not crossing over for whatever reason. You know, some of his earlier movies have been sent here. They might have done okay in like Forty Second Street and the Grindhouse Circuit. That was really into this, these kung fu movies, but he never broke out here like Jimmy Wang Yu did or like Bruce Lee did. Um, and it's, it's some kind of them, of, if I'm if I'm right, break out decently in like the UK. Yes, he's he's definitely better known in the UK at this time, but he's, the American market is just like constantly looting him. I think that's frustrating to him because there's still this idea around the world of Hollywood being where people want to get. And, you know, Jackie's into like old Hollywood movies. He's a huge Fred Astaire fan. He's a huge Gene Kelly fan, like like loves The Wizard of Oz. And he definitely wants to be a Hollywood star. And Golden Harvest really wants him to be a Hollywood star. Raymond Chow, the head of Golden Harvest, is like very at that time really looking to expand what Golden Harvest is and expand their imprint. So they keep trying to make him um, an American star. They, it never really works. You know, there's like an American like a co-production of Golden Harvest of the All Run movies, which are huge hits and Jackie's in them. But he's a very small character. He gets to do his little fight scenes. But it's not like anyone walks out of that going, wow, changes that. Given to crawl and the producer in both cases, American directors make and they don't and play against the strengths. The protection is very weird to watch because it's him playing like a hard boiled cop in the like 80s, and you can just tell he's so uncomfortable. It's like, go on play roles like this, he became a better actor, but at this point, he doesn't look like he wants to be holding a gun, he certainly doesn't look like he wants to be playing a serious character, and so these movies fail, and he basically just, like, leaves. He leaves Hollywood and comes back and says, I tried, I don't like it there, they didn't listen to me, it sucks, I don't care about Hollywood anymore. And it really doesn't come back around for him 
uh, until like later on in the early 90s. He starts to get a little bit more attention here. Stallone becomes a big fan of his to the point of actually just flat out stealing a stunt and shot from Police Story and putting it in Tango and Cash. Um, but he also like <laughs> name drops him and he's like inviting Jackie Chan to like his premieres. Um, and Quentin Tarantino starts talking about Jackie Chan a lot. And this all builds to Jackie Chan being given the Lifetime Achievement Award at the MTV Movie Awards in, I believe, 94, I think. And now we know that, like, like Quentin Tarantino presents that. They, they do this awesome like, sizzle reel of all Jackie's, like, fights and stunts. I think now, in retrospect, that was probably also, like, co-financed by New Line Cinema to kind of start building up hype for him in the American market because they're going to try one more time. Right? They're going to, like, okay, he's been around. He's been a pretty big deal. His previous American attempt failed. Let's try one more time. And so they try in 1995 with Rumble in the Bronx. Guess what? Finally works. Rumble in the Bronx makes 70 million worldwide, but 10 million in the U.S. box office. Doesn't sound like a lot to us, but that was a pretty big deal for that movie at the time. And more, like, more importantly, it just gets him known over here to the point where he finally starts getting cast in American movies. Right? Becomes like a cult film star here, if not like a bigger star, because he ends up going on to star in the Rush Hour series in 1998. That goes on to gross over 130 million, spawns two sequels. I believe like Rush Hour 2, its opening weekend at the time was like the biggest opening weekend ever or something, or like maybe for like that month or something. Um, but yeah, he's finally at that point. That got sounds his, right. Like his, his American, his American stardom. And they, it starts like kind of not only doing movies like the Rush Hour movies and the Shanghai movies, the Owen Wilson and, and movies like, um, the, the medallion, I think it's like Jennifer Love Hewitt. And so maybe that's the tuxedo. I get those confused all the time. But like more importantly, to me at least, they're finally also going back and grabbing some of his earlier or late 80s and early 90s Hong Kong movies, dubbing them and releasing them in theaters here. So like Police Story 3 is released here as Super Cop. Um, Police Story 4 is released here as First Strike. You know, we get like uh, Mr. Nice Guy and Operation Condor. These come out in theaters here. And so finally, we're getting to see his movies on the big screen here. And finally, he gets his, his lifetime goal. He's a star around the world. Whew, I've been talking a lot now. Anything we want to talk about is happening in a movie recently or anything? Or... Yeah, I I could. I could. <laughs> so, yeah, he talking about the movie, we have been introduced to the Beggar So character at this yes, point, yes. who though he's certainly not an exact takeoff because i think a more exact takeoff if you're really interested in pinpointing an exact takeoff for roshi comes from um oh i mentioned the movie it was like the 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 like sinbad movie or something like that i i, I can no longer recall the, the the name of it because this isn't about that movie or like roshi that? even um, oh, not that but, but there's there's a movie we've mentioned it on our Roshi episode if you want to go back and listen to it where like it's it's the master Roshi character like he is a he is a dirty old hermit who loves looking at naked women like it's like 100% master Roshi but you still got this old man who seems incompetent outwardly and seems very crass and very crude and and is i mean that's that's his nature and that is at least i think at this point what beggar so has sort of maybe been reduced to somewhat is right he's had a long life he is no longer the man he once was and his style, we'll see this more as, as the movie goes on, his style of being the drunken master of, you'll see it as, the, 
when he when he ultimately explains what the style is to 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 Jackie Chan is it it seems like you're going to lose because you are drunk and you look off balance but really that's your power is your opponent thinks you are off balance and approaches you as if you are off balance but in reality you are in complete control and you know how to fight that way and I think that I gives out. you the I think I figured out why Toriyama loves this movie because he's basically making subverting expectations a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, that is this is this is that character. He seems he he seems one way, he is another, right? He seems like just like a dirty, crusty old man, but he is actually one of the greatest martial arts masters of his time, and we've got actually a little bit more about who these men are. Uh, in our notes a little bit later as historical characters, but, but Jackie Chan's character is about to learn that lesson kind of the hard way that, that his braggart and arrogant ways have been wrong. (laughs) But, but yeah, I I can also talk here too about, you know, we wanted to take some time to talk about Jackie Chan and our personal experiences with him. He is not my favorite movie star of all time. (laughs) You know, sadly, I guess, but I remember him when Rumble in the... And I was only 10 years old at the time, but this kind of goes to speak to how big Rumble in the Bronx was, even though it, quote-unquote, only made $10 million at the U.S. box office. That is analogous, I would say, to, like, everything, everywhere, all at once. When people talk about it was this huge success and it was A24's highest grossing film of all time and people thought it's this giant box office success, when you go back and look at how much money it actually made, it's like $100 million. And that's that sounds laughable to, you know, when we're talking about billion dollars. Well, $10 million sounded laughable when you're talking about, like, movies that were huge hits would make, like, 200 or 300 million dollars but for the kind of movie that it was low low budget certainly even compared to 10 million dollars and again even even with it being a breakout hit probably not a ton of theaters probably not a very big nationwide push to make 10 million dollars means everywhere it was playing it was selling out basically or there was like as as much as they thought they could possibly sell it was it was a huge huge hit and that's where i remember it from because that is where even at like 10 10 years old and then through the next few years of my life which kind of culminated i'll say in like the rush hour series in like 98 the the myth as 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 trev is exposed of jackie chan as being like the the guy who does all his own stunts became like the thing and that that's where his star in America flourished and where everyone I think to some extent was at least familiar with, if not kind of infatuated with him of like, Oh, this guy does his own stunts, does all his own stunts. And you'd see all those little sizzle reels of him, you know, they'd even be just like things like him climbing fences and jumping over fences and taking a fall and things. But that is a thing that like, I don't know, Van Damme maybe wouldn't do, or uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, wouldn't do. They wouldn't do those 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 kinds of stunts, like Mel Gibson, for sure, uh, who was a big action star. 
and, and not even just the stunts, but also like uh, the he just infuses like comedy into his action, which is something that nobody had really done before that at least and, and even I, at the time right like schwarzenegger wasn't doing action comedy schwarzenegger was a badass you yeah. know like <laughs> uh so yeah for 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 him to be so so funny and and naturally charismatic he really is he's always been a very interesting and and just magnetic film personality even though i've He's his filmography is a bit of a blind spot for me. I've seen Police Story so long ago, and this movie, and like Rush Hour One, and then I never bothered with the rest. And I just like I've seen a few of his more recent movies actually because I'm more into just the like his one with John Cena that just just came out. Yeah, Hidden Strike. Surprisingly, was was I'm more into like I'll watch something like that because it's just not what Hollywood is doing right now. He's a blind spot for me, but but he's also like he is just someone who's I've always known as being a huge huge action star. Yeah, um, I, I'm a lot like you. I. I was first exposed to him uh with rumble in the bronx uh but me personally i enjoyed rush hour one and, and followed up on, <laughs> on the other two um i i enjoy those movies uh, uh mostly for what they are like they're not anything you know, like cinematically um game changing or anything like that but uh it's it's just his particular blend of of that action comedy that really is just very enjoyable to me and um it 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 did eventually open me up to some of his more serious roles. Like there's that one, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it, he stars uh, with Pierce Brosnan, who's the like, a, a, yes, the foreigner. Thank you. Yeah. I, I figured you'd know it. Seeing a more serious turn from him in that, in that movie, I think really kind mm. of upped its quality for me personally. Yeah. Um, he's really good in that. He's also really good in a dra- dramatic role in the Karate Kid remake. He's actually like amazing in that. Wh- which is another film of his that I, I also greatly enjoy. I, I liked the uh, the spin that that it's it's more the master that needs needs help in that version as opposed yeah. to the kid. But yeah, I've been I've been a fan of his for a long time. Um, but uh, obviously not not the kind of super fan that Trev is. But uh, always enjoyed his movies and and um, I, I guess I've just been looking for an excuse to go back and watch his older stuff because. Uh, I I greatly enjoyed this movie. I thought this this movie was a lot of fun. I thought that the choreography in it was amazing, honestly. And what what I'll say is, you know, despite some of the things we've we've kind of learned or whatever about about Jackie Chan as yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. Don't worry. <laughs> as as life has just gotten further along, I really respect his commitment to making it as a Hollywood star on his terms, he was offered and this, this blew my mind because the, this is the kind of thing that in retrospect, if say rumble in the Bronx hadn't been a huge break breakthrough hit. And then especially if the rush hour films had flopped, he could potentially be looking back 
as a what like 70 year old man now still just just doing things in Hong Kong and never having made it as a as a major American star be looking at this decision as just the biggest mistake of his career was offered the role of Wesley Snipes in Demolition Man and said, no, I I don't want to be the villain. I that's not. And and it's funny because in this movie, he's very willing to play a flawed hero, like extremely flawed here. He's he's at his lowest point. He has been embarrassed by the villain. He has been literally depanced (laughs) and he is begging for training from beggar so so he's very willing to play a flawed hero but he did not want to play a villain and to to kind of stay committed to that despite you know from about the late 80s into the early 90s really wanting to break through in the united states and that being a potentially huge break and turning that down i i respect that yeah so for me i guess like i'll quickly explain like why I'm a super fan like and then I'll talk a little bit about what you're mentioning about like what we know about him now but yeah for me I mean I was always I was always into like martial arts and kung fu as a kid to a lesser degree like when in the 80s and early 90s I just liked martial arts and movies I liked there's a big ninja movie bo- uh, boom in the 80s and I always like liked watching those on TV and we did have a I grew up in the metro Detroit area and we had a local station here that had a kung fu theater every Saturday at noon showing like the old Shaw Brothers movies so I saw a lot That's of those cool. as a kid and they were just kind of interchangeable but I always liked them and when Jackie and then I got really into Tarantino in the 90s and I kept him talk about this guy, Jackie Chan. And I'm trying like I now the timeline here might get a little iffy for me. I can't remember if like, I had already heard his name before Tarantino started talking about or whatever. But I remember watching that Lifetime Achievement presentation and just being so excited for like the release of Rumble in the Bronx, because like here's this guy that Tarantino, my new hero at that time, is saying is like the best movie star in the world. Oh my God, look at all these stunts he did. I couldn't wait to see that movie. And I remember just dragging my parents to see it. They didn't want to see it. The movie started, they didn't know it was dubbed. They looked at me like, what did you get us into? And then of course, <laughs> by the end of the movie, they loved it too. Cut to like my parents going to see every Jackie Chan movie, you know, that came out after that too. And we were all, well, us going together. But it's just like, that is the point where I, it's like, it locked in for me of like how much I love Kung Fu and in particular how much I love Jackie Chan. But two things were happening at that time because it's like the martial arts movies were starting to come out here more regularly because of him now. Like he would go to like Suncoast Video or Tower Records in the mall and you could get these like Jackie Chan. I alluded to this earlier. There was like these VHS two packs that would have the old classic Jackie Chan movies. Sometimes those were just the shitty low way movies we talked about. You go home and be all excited and watch and be like, what? <laughs> this sucks. You know, <laughs> but it was like just cashing in on his name now. But I was just like, oh, it was, I was so more excited about Kung Fu. But also at the time. I was going to a lot of Comic-Cons, and Comic-Cons at that time had way more bootleg tables. And the bootleg tables were selling VHSs and then eventually DVDs of Hong Kong action cinema. And this is the same time where suddenly we were learning as American action was starting. American action movies were starting to like really peter out. Like the, the days of Schwarzenegger and Sloan were kind of starting to be behind us, and the action was getting lame. And then suddenly you hear, you hear these whispers like, have you seen these movies from this guy, John Woo? And I was like, well, what's this John Woo? What's this Ringo Lamb you're talking about? What's this Choi Hark? And suddenly you're getting to see uh, bootlegs of Hard Boiled and The Killer and A Better Tomorrow and Full Contact. And I just like got obsessed with Hong Kong action cinema in general, not just martial arts, but also like the, the you know, unfu movies, the, the romantic kind of, um, you know, gunplay movies of, of that genre. 
And so I I spent like that period, like 94 to like 97, buying like every book I could Hong Kong action cinema. A lot of what I was just telling you guys about what I know about Jackie Chan's history, I pulled from a book from, I still have today, it's sitting in front of me right now. It's by Bay Logan. It's called Hong Kong Action Cinema from 1995. I think there's some more editions of it, but I still have the one I bought in 95 because it just means so much to me. And like, yeah. And so for me, he was like the mascot of all that because he was the most fun. His movies were the most entertaining. Everything we already said about him. He's just so charismatic for, like I said, for a while, I bought into the stunt thing, thinking he did them all. Later on, I learned that's not true. I don't care because it's like he didn't do them all. But what he's doing is still so impressive. He has broken like every bone in his body. His stunt work is incredible. We also didn't mention the bloopers that are at the end of most of his movies. And that was like, it just humanized him so much to you, right? He just made him such a likable character beyond his his movie, his characters. Like the persona of Jackie Chan was so much. And so, yeah, I just, I just, I've, I fell in love with him. I've always loved him. That's why I say he's my favorite movie star. I don't think he's the best actor in the world, obviously. I do think he's, he's become a pretty good dramatic actor in his later years. It's just more, I, I can tune on a Jackie Chan movie at almost any time and it makes me happy. And I've done that very, very often. And going back and trying to find, see almost all his entire filmography and how many of them are just like stone cold classics to me. Now, Jelly alluded to the fact that, you know, his life has kind of trudged on the age of the internet has, has dawned. He's become a more controversial character, uh, you know, in real life. His like his kind of foibles, his follies have come to the forefront a little bit more. We know now that there's like an unfortunate pivot in his political views. He's aligned himself quite often with the Chinese Communist Party. He's done like propaganda videos for them. He's put out public service announcements for them. Now, I I can kind of defend that to a certain degree. I, I do think people have to remember with that, that he was a young kid thrown into like movie stardom and I think right away, the Chinese Communist Party saw him as like a propaganda tool. And so you have to figure that he's someone who like this government has been treating him like a star and treating him like giving him the world. Right. Since he was a young man, I don't it's kind of like not surprising to me that he maybe has like a little bit of a blind eye towards their problems. And he just sees them as this like organization that was always there for him and always gave him whatever he wanted. And so like that's where I kind of think that comes from, unfortunately, and I think. He he's been famous since he was like in his 20s. And I don't think he understands the plight of the (laughs) and I know this is like not the best excuse, but I really just think he doesn't understand the plight of what uh, people who aren't at his station of life go through uh, under that party. So it's unfortunate, but I kind of get it. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's, we we don't I I really just wanted to bring it up because yeah, we, no, we don't shy away from that stuff, right? Like, no, it's we, we, up, and so is his like his relationship with his family in recent years. I mean, there's been a lot of heat on him recently because he had a daughter out of uh, he had an affair, he had a daughter out of wedlock, and he's like has no relationship with that daughter, and she has been very vocal about. She has said she thinks because she's gay and uh, Jackie is maybe very uh, homophobic and does not want to have anything to do with a gay daughter. And that's also awful. And, and, and like, and then there's this weird thing where I do say like, God, that sucks. But then he's released like two movies in the last couple of years that are about his character trying to like reconnect with a daughter that he's like lost touch with. And like he knows he was like a bad ass to fix that. And it's like, you get that sense like, Oh, this is like Jackie Chan. He's too stubborn to do this in real life, but he does know he's a piece of shit and he's trying to say it in the movies, but that's like the best we're going to get from him. And like, so there are controversial, there are crappy things about him. On top of it, he is still like one of the most philanthropic people in Hollywood. He's campaigned for and donated to tons of disaster relief efforts, conservationist groups, animal rights organizations. Um, In 2008, he made a pledge that upon his death, half of his assets would be donated to charity. 
He's donated money to medical research facilities all over the world. He's like active in charities that are bringing education to children in remote areas of China. So he he does do a lot of great stuff, but he also there's some there's some problematic elements of him, and I think it's we we can't shy away from it. Yeah, no, it's it's just like we we talk about this with with Toriyama too. He is he he's an he's an uh, introvert who has built a world that is very extroverted, right? Goku is very outgoing. The whole world is very outgoing and very fun and very exciting and very accepting of everyone. But within that, he has had characters who are queer or queer-coded and, like, made them punchlines or villains. And, you know, he has... We talked about he, when he got married, his wife was actually a successful mangaka, and he made her quit, and was like, no, you're my wife now, you are taking care of my household. And that doesn't even, that doesn't even get into the whole issue with um, Mr. Popo. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that that is a very, we're going to be talking about that in 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 the coming weeks, but that's, that's a very Japanese thing in general is a very problematic view of anyone who's not Asian or white (laughs) and very often just anyone who's not Asian. (laughs) Yeah. And and even among that, anyone who's uh, not of their social status as we, uh, you'll hear the episodes not out yet, but you'll hear in our uh, demon King Piccolo episode when we talk about the barakumin <laughs> so so yes it, it's a very it's a very cultural thing but that is again that's i think with with jackie chan that's a very cultural thing with yeah. him to be a high high standing chinese person it's kind of it's almost like yeah of course he's gonna advocate for the the communist party like he's been in their pocket since before the internet existed yeah there's definitely elements of sexism with him too you can find a really famous like interview with uh, michelle yo and david lerman talking about like they're working together on like super cop and and they're friends but even as friends she was she just flat out says oh he's a he's a sexist pig you know and he's he's talking to me about how he thinks women like she always says, like, he, the reason I know he respects me is because he said I'm the only woman he thinks is good enough to be doing these kind of roles and doing this action. But otherwise, he's he thinks women should kind of be in the kitchen and have these traditional roles. So, yeah, it's like he, I know this is like the worst thing people like, but he does. He comes from a different time. And I, unfortunately, I think he got locked into that time. And he's now been like he's come up in an environment that's never allowed him to, like, expand beyond that and, like, see the real world in a better way. And that's not making an excuse for him because you, you still he still could have, but I think that's at least explains where he's coming from and this stuff. It's it's definitely very cultural. Yeah, yeah. So it's I mean, that's it, you either die a hero, right? Yeah, <laughs> true. One of those. Um. So yeah, so that's all about the legend in front of the camera, and we could talk a little bit more about the one behind the camera because you uh, and you Yun Wu Ping is as integral a part of Dragon, Drunken Master's success and Hong Kong cinema history as Jackie Chan and to expand to Hong Kong cinema, Jet Li, Michelle Yeoh, Chow Yun Fat, more on him when we unfortunately ultimately cover Dragon Ball Evolution. 
I, I smell a potential crossover episode there as well with uh, yeah. Failure Franchise. Yeah, I think that's the same spot. <laughs> we don't want to go through that pain alone. Um, but so, born in born in Guangdong, China, Wu Ping is taught Kung Fu by his father, who was also a veteran of Peking Opera, which was, like we said, it's an entry point for many stars of the era. One of ten children, Yuan grew up around film sets, with his father being an action choreographer and extras-level actor. He moves on, when to be uh, a bit part actor and stuntman, just like his father, and eventually gets called on for choreography as well. During those early years, he received some mentoring from Chor Wen, a legendary Hong Kong wuxia director who directed The House of 72 Tenants, the action comedy film that actually beat Enter the Dragon at the Chinese box office. So if you're if you're looking for that guy's claim to fame, even though I've actually never seen The House of 72 Tenants. Yeah, I don't know if, if Trev has. Nope. Uh, wild that the movie that beats it at the box office, right, is like this un like this unremembered thing in 72 uh when yuping first meets eng siyong working as the fight choreographer in the eng directed film the bloody fists and when eng starts seasonal film corporation he winds up tapping yuan yuping to direct when eng decides to take more of a producer role and step back a little bit as sort of the primary director of seasonal film now Yuan has been tutored by action comedy masters and raised to utilize the talents of his stars and their styles. So when Jackie Chan comes to him and says, hey, we should do Snake and Eagle's Shadow more slapstick, Yuan is receptive to it. He's like, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. That's that's my style, too. Let's let's try it. Film becomes a smash hit. And they decide to dial that up even further with Drunken Master. And like Trev kind of mentioned, Though I've never seen Snake and Eagle Shadow, it really sounds like this is that film kind of dialed up to 11 and perfected. And now Jackie Chan and Yuan are both money in the bank. Unfortunately for Yuan, somewhat similar to Chan, his career doesn't take off in the 80s as much as he would have liked. And he gets a little bit typecast as a director of Drunken Master films, though he does direct Drunken Tai Chi in 1984, which launches the career of Johnny, jo- uh, Johnny, Donnie Yen, who you might know from Ip Man, Rogue One. Everyone loves that character in Rogue One, the blind guy. Mm-hmm. I, whatever. Sure. Uh, and and he's got I I call it, I'll call it a scene stealing, but really it's like an every scene he's in stealing role in John Wick Four. He, he is so good in that movie. It's like every scene he's in, he's the star of it. And he's in, I don't know, five or six of them? Like, like several extended good sequences. Now, in the, in the late 80s then, Yuan works as the action director on the Jackie, Lan- Jackie Chan-led Twin Dragons with Jet Li on Once Upon a Time in China 2, and then directs the 1993 film Iron Monkey, which becomes a major hit. And Yuan is called a personal favorite of his. Then throughout the 90s, he receives multiple calls and offers to come work in Hollywood, but he keeps declining. He keeps thinking, my English isn't good enough to come work and be successful in America. It's, it's, it's pretty self-effacing and, and 
and humble mentality. Ultimately, he gets a call when production is beginning on this little movie called The Matrix. <laughs> and this time, the Shaw brothers put their foot down. Like, like Trev mentioned, they are eager for Hollywood stars and Hollywood bankability. They put their foot down and they say, listen, you're being offered a free round trip ticket and free hotel. Just, just go have a chat with these guys. It would be impolite to decline. They're going to pay you for your time no matter what. So it'd be rude not to go. So he goes and they, you know, the, I'm sure it's the, the Wachowskis are part of it or like, yeah, his English is good enough to be the fight choreographer and the matrix and then crouching tiger, hidden dragon become these smash hits stateside. And he becomes one of the most highly sought after sought after auction choreographers in Hollywood. And he continues to work on the matrix films. He goes to work on kill bill, which there's a great scene earlier in this that, even though it's got a slightly different energy, reminds me of the the Kill Bill sequence where the bride has hurt her hand so much that she can't pick up the chopsticks. Yeah, I got you. When when Jackie Chan is is trying to eat the rice and Beggar So is like, "Oh, you can't eat it here. Let me help yeah. you out." Well, that's here you go, that's, here you go mean, baby. Here. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very different from how uh, <laughs> from how Pai Mei reacts, True. but. But Yuan also works on he works on Kill Bill, Kung Fu Hustle, which is also awesome, and we're gonna talk way more about Chow when we get to Dragon Ball Evolution because he's uh, kind of unfortunately a big part of that movie getting off the ground. Uh, but Yuan also works on Danny the Dog, which is another Jet Li movie that I really like too, and he works with uh, War Kong Wai on 2013's The Grandmaster, and he's Yuan Yuan Yuping has remained active. To this day, and he's pushing 80 years old. That's an impressive career, honestly. So, as a great many of the things we cover on this podcast, there's an interesting peek into Asian culture available from watching this movie and learning a little bit more about it. The main character of the film, played by Jackie Chan, obviously, is based on Wong Fei-hun, a real-life Chinese martial arts master and physician who wound up becoming a Chinese folk hero. Wong was born in 1847 in what is now part of Foshan City in Guangdong, China, uh, during the – I believe that's Qing Dynasty? I don't know if it might Anybody? be Qing Dynasty too. Like I, I don't know. I'll go with Qing. Uh, apologies if I got it wrong. Um, at the age of five, he started learning the art of Kung Fu in the Hunga style from his father, uh, whom he would accompany on trips to the provincial capital where his father would sell medicine and perform martial arts in the streets. When he was 13, he encountered an apprentice of Leung Quan, also known as Iron Bridge Three, uh, who was one of the Ten Tigers of Canton, not Ohio, <laughs> <laughs> a group of the top ten martial artists of China. Uh, this apprentice, Lam Fuk Sing, uh, instructed Wong further in Hunga, and he also taught him how to use a sling, which I would not have pegged people using slings still in the 1800s, but okay. Wong was reputedly a master of iron fist and shadowless kick, wherein the former is a very powerful punch whose strength is gained from wearing iron rings around one's wrist, which we saw earlier in the movie during the uh, the hot water training. Uh, and the latter is a kick so blindingly fast and with no bodily movement aside from the leg that the opponent is unaware the move has even been performed until they feel the pain from the strike. And, and that's a I very... Can do, I can do that. 
I was about to say that <laughs> that seems completely reasonable and something anybody should be able to do. That's uh, a very Dragon Ball Z oh, that's, style thing, though, that's, right? That's of like, like so anime and manga. <laughs> yeah, it's such a huge like, trope. Punches being thrown before the other person even realizes they're thrown and things like that. I mean, it's even it, it's funny because one of my one of the most interesting examples of that or just that sticks in my head is when Cell finally gains perfect form and Vegeta is actually moving so fast that Cell struggles to dodge him a little bit and he hits him. And it's at that point that Vegeta realizes how screwed he is because he hits him and it it's like, it's nothing. Just completely no-sells it. It'd be like if you couldn't dodge a punch from your three-year-old. <laughs> like, um, I also think it probably ties into the whole uh, like cultivation thing that we've talked about a few times where the reason why this strike appears that way to people is because you are not trained enough to understand how the strike actually works. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Wong was known to be very personable, and because of this, he made many friends in the martial arts circuit and wound up learning from them to compile a set of skills and techniques that formed his own unique style of hunga, uh, that forms the basis of much of what is seen in southern Chinese fighting styles to this day. Now, it's during this period of time, as Wong is establishing himself, uh, his style and his reputation that leads to his legend, uh, that he repeatedly met So Chan, the basis for Drunken Masters Baker So. Uh, who was one of the other ten Tigers of Canton, the two battled to test their skills. Uh, he founded his own martial arts school in 1863, and in 1866 opened his own medical clinic, uh, practicing traditional Chinese medicine, bone setting, and acupuncture. This is where the actual history kind of starts to get a little hazy, though, and it's more legend than it is actual fact. Uh, in the 1870s, he joined the Black Flag Army, which was basically just a bunch of bandits who threw like – who uh, – uh, sorry. Hold on. Uh, so yeah, so he joined the Black Flag Army. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm tripping over this. Uh, yeah, they get established as bandits and brigands, and they uh, wind up okay. though – Ultimately, being known throughout China as heroes of the Sino-French War. Yes. And they're like known as these people who valiantly fend off invasions from French forces. Yeah. So before officially being disbanded in 1885 as part of the treaty that ended that war, uh, however, they were still reputedly around up to about like 1895, um, they were attempting to defend Taiwan for the invading Imperial Japanese Army, and Wong is said to have mentored the army and been present at their battles and won victories and become uh, a local legend during this period, and the stories have only grown in incredulity over the many decades since. Uh, yeah, so he probably was, like, in reality, just some dude who, like, would give them hype speeches, <laughs> essentially, but over, you know... 200 years has been built up to be this guy who's, you know, like William Wallace, right? Like sh shooting bolts of lightning out of his ass and, <laughs> and taking down the invading Japanese. So after the collapse of the Qing dynasty, uh, Wong spent some time as a bodyguard for local businesses during the chaotic early years of the Republic of China. 
uh, during which time uh, more stories of his ability to fight off bandits and robbers emerged, including single-handedly fighting off 30 men with a staff. That's pretty impressive, honestly. <laughs> In 1919, Wong was invited to perform at the opening ceremonies of the Chinwu Athletic Association's new branch in Canton, during which time one of his sons was murdered by a rival known as Devil Ai Leung. Uh, upon learning of this incident, he just swore off martial arts completely. Then in 1924, during an uprising organized by the Cantonese Merchant Corps, uh, the nationalist government, in an effort to suppress the uprising, which wound up being resoundingly successful, uh, destroyed Wong's family medical clinic. The incident so upset Wong that he fell into a deep depression, eventually falling ill and ultimately passing away about six months later. Yeah, so he's, from my understanding, he's this, um, what is it, Wong Fei, Wong Fei Hung, is, yeah. is kind of like the American, or, or the, the Asian, the Chinese specifically version of like a Daniel Boone or uh, maybe like a General Custer or something like that, where Davy Crockett maybe uh, General yeah, Custer every example. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know because like everyone kind of knows his name, right? And he's known as being like a like a hero, but ultimately, you know the the his efforts to suppress the invading Japanese. While he might have been a hero of those battles, like Japan does take over China for a time as Japan becomes more colonial and expanding. So his efforts are ultimately not super successful. And, you know, the the army that he's part of, the Black Flag Army, has to be disbanded because they lose the Sino-French War. And all of these things that kind of go a little bit against him basically but he still becomes known as the the folk hero of a sort of losing side of the battle that's where i kind of draw the parallel to like a general custer right as everyone knows the name it's just i guess in america we have more popular folk heroes who we think of as being actually successful in wars but it's that same kind of thing of everyone knows this guy everyone knows his name he's a he's a super folk hero uh and so he's been adapted hundreds of times in in stories and film and children's stories and things like that and that's that's who jackie chan is playing in this movie he's playing this extremely popular folk hero of of china that yeah. um it's actually really hard for us as an American audience to understand like how big of a deal Wang Fei Hung is because you can like draw parallels to other American folk heroes, but I don't think it's even comparable on like the level of like cultural importance and like how revered this character is in in like Chinese and Hong Kong society and and culture. Like you said, like a hundred over a hundred films of television series. I mean, over a hundred films. That's so shortchanging it because there's a series of movies. Um, so like they start making Wang Fei Hung movies in 1949. And it starts as like this, like kind of low budget serial. But there's a there's a series at that point 
I believe it gets, I, there's 99 of them. They said that ahead of time because 99 is like an important spiritual number in, in Chinese society. And so they say we're going to make 99 of these with Quan Ta King playing Master, uh, Master Wang Fang. And that's, uh, he becomes, he's become so synonymous with the role that he plays him in 99 movies. So just in this series alone, that he be, just becomes nicknamed Master Wong. Like people will see him on the street and people see him in stores. And he's not Quan Tick hung to them. He's, he's Master Wong. And um, that's just like not like you know we we talk about today like we'll be like oh my god they're making another Spider Man movie, but I mean like <laughs> Wong Fei Hung like so many Wong Fei Hung movies have been made because you get through the series of ninety nine with Quan Ta King, but they just keep going and even he comes back and plays Wong Fei Hung again after that later on in life. There's a great movie I think it's actually the last time he played Wong Fei Hung. There's a great eighties Yun Biao movie called Dreadnought. Well, which I'd really highly recommend too, which is like a strange kung fu horror movie about a young Biao is this guy who ends up having to fight this strange uh, kung fu serial killer who wears a mask or, or like, and uh, an older Quan Tucking is in that as like an old Wang Fei Hung, so he does it a lot, right? But beyond him, so many actors have played this character. Like that's it's almost like a, I don't I, like a rite of passage. It's, it's like to, as a an actor in this realm to like that you got to play Wong Fei at some point. You know Gordon Liu, uh, a martial arts like legend. Also he played. Uh, you talked about um, Pei Mai and or is it Pei Mai? Sorry, the character in Kill Pai Bill, Mei. Or, Pai, Pai Mei. Mei yeah. Pai Mei. Yeah, he plays Pai, uh, and he plays the the leader of the the gang that fights the bride in the in the the crazy uh, eighty eight. Crazy. I don't know why I'm forgetting all this stuff from one of my favorite movies, but but he's also yeah, he's like a, he, he plays him in Challenge of the Masters. Um, Jet Li plays him in the Once Upon a Time in China series and Last Hero in China. Um, Once Upon a Time in China, that whole series is awesome. Criterion put out a great box set of it. Definitely recommend those. Donnie Yen plays Wang Fei Hung in Iron Monkey. Sammo Hung plays him in Around the World in 80 Days. It's what we called Rise of the Legends, starring Eddie Ping. Vincent Ziao plays Wang in a TV series that's kind of like a companion piece to Once Upon a Time in China. So he's just this character that like so many iconic Hong Kong action stars have portrayed. He's popped up in so many different types of stories. But again, I just wanted to bring it back to Drunken Master. The, the really crucial thing here is that in almost all of those movies we just mentioned, and especially the early ones, that early Quan Ta King serial, which everyone knew um, Wang Fei Hung for, and had such an iconic theme song that's pretty much put into every Wang Fei Hung movie, including this one. It's in Drunken Master. Um, it's just people say you're making a Wang Fei Hung movie. You got to have that theme music. But in all of those, they usually pick him up at like middle age or later. Right. It's about like the older Wang Fei Hung, who's already become this very like spiritual Kung Fu master who comes into a place and doles out Confucius type wisdom. And Jackie Chan, again, looking to like break the mold, says, you know what? Nobody's made a movie about Wang Fei Hung when he was a teenager. Why don't we do that? And what if he was like a piece of shit? <laughs> he was a teenager <laughs> like what if he was a punk you know and like and that was like so that had to be so revolutionary at the time i even wonder i don't know too much about this i've never seen it written about but i have to imagine there was probably an older audience that just like hated this movie or like refused to see it just off of concept alone of the fact of jackie chan wanting to play a more brash impulsive uh egotistical uh, and and like crummy like Wang fei hung you know so yeah huge icon that i don't think there's anything kind of comparable in american culture like no but nobody like real person you know maybe like a batman or spider-man but no like real person and and that's like that's the the i know he's a real person versus character but you know it's it's like the the first time you portray captain america as being like an agent of hydra or superman as being a dick 
there's a portion of people who just on that concept alone will be so repulsed yeah that they'll refuse to engage with it and then just to make things like even more confusing for audiences like beyond Wong Fei Hung the character after the success of Drunken Master there starts to just be a lot of movies ripping this movie off about similar characters right and just the idea of a, a character doing the drunken fighting style so then you have actors like Donnie Yen, uh, Donnie Yen and Gordon Liu again and Andy Liao Johnny Chan appearing in all these various rip-off Drunken Master films. You have movies like Drunken Tai Chi and Shaolin Drunken Monk and um, a Drunken... Like, there's like a Drunken Master 2 before like, you know... The, I think there's like multiple movies called Drunken Master 2 in some markets. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> eventually Jackie Chan does make his Drunken Master 2 in 1994, which, by the way, is my favorite kung fu movie. and definitely Like my favorite Jackie Chan and just kung fu movie in general. Check it out. It's also awesome because he's still playing Wang Fei Hung as a teenager, even though he's now like a middle-aged man. <laughs> Um, there's nobody in the movie. casting choices. Yeah, it's nobody in the movie like questions it or says anything about it. Um, the fighting style in this movie, the, the whole and seeing that actually perfect. Right, we're seeing the, the drunken master fighting style, the, the idea of imbibing alcohol and you know allowing it to be a better kind of lawyer. And it's based entirely, uh, almost entirely, on the Hung Gao system developed by Wang Fei Hung, with derived from the system with only like. This song has occasional relationship to those animal-based systems. So, like for instance, the crane style of this film is based on Hunga's tiger crane paired fist, and not the Tibetan white crane style, which was adapted in some of the Donnie Yen Ip Man films. The the drunken boxing style featured in this movie is an amalgamation, actually, of routines found in various systems, and it's pretty much just a creation of uh, Yun Wu Ping um, and the villain styles of, or uh, sorry. The villain styles of Devil's Kick and Devil's Shadowless Hands are just totally fictitious. It's something he makes up. I think he's more interested in, as Jackie was, I think this is the reason they were such a great team. They're both more interested in cinematic fighting, like what looks best in the screen, as opposed to should we be super accurate to these real styles. So those mm-hmm. styles and the villain styles are created by Yun, as well as the actor Huang Jiangli, who plays the role of Thunderleg. And he was a, that's the villain. He was also a Taekwondo master known for his proficiency with high flying kicks. So they cast him and say, oh, you're a Taekwondo master. You know these kicks. Let's make that your fighting style of movie. Let's create a style that speaks to you. We'll call you Thunderleg. We'll have it be called the Devil's Kick. And it's all about that style. So, yeah, they're more interested in what looks good on screen. Right. And. I don't know how you guys feel for feel about him. I mean, he's a. He, I feel like he's in it, Thunderleg, like just enough maybe to where we kind of don't pick up on or notice that he's more of a Taekwondo master and like a fight choreographer than a proficient actor, right? <laughs> he's yeah, great mustache. He's just he's just sort great of a mustache. nameless kind of thug really i mean that that is if the movie has a has a shortfall it is that the you know, we there's like a lot of talk like a a movie's hero is only as good as, as its villain sometimes the villain of this is just okay well let's just be honest the, the this movie doesn't have the best plot right it doesn't have a the <laughs> most it doesn't have the best structured story the this movie is designed to be a showcase for both jackie chan and the new style of martial arts movie he wants to make that's what this movie is designed to do and it succeeds amazingly in that degree but the story is kind of like oddly structured the villain pops in and pops out you know the ending is very abrupt which we'll get to later so yeah i mean it's just like it was designed to do one thing in particular and it does that well right 
And that's so we we've we've talked about the production history, the director, the principal star. So we've also talked about the fighting styles, the the character. So what's left is is so as in beggar so, which is Wong's mentor in the film. He's a he's also based on a real life folk hero or person who became a folk hero. Beggar So was born So Xuan in the Qing Dynasty. And unlike Wang Fei-Hung, who encountered the Ten Tigers of Canton throughout his life, Beggar So was one of the Ten Tigers of Canton. This is like they were the ten people who were most famous throughout southern China for creating martial arts and ultimately creating these styles that fused into what is still taught in China today as martial arts. He over time so becomes a folk hero and he's most well known for his drunken boxing. In addition to being skilled in drunken boxing, unarmed martial arts and Shaolin staff, he created a technique called bowl, golden bowl and iron chopsticks wherein you would distract and bait an opponent into attacking with a bowl on one hand and attack acupressure points on them with iron chopsticks held in your other hand, which is I mean that just kind of goes into the whole drunken master thing, right? He is like this baits you in with one thing and then attacks you with something that seems innocent enough and it incapacitates you. I'm also starting to wonder if, like, some of these masters weren't just like, well, nobody's done a drunk style before. We've we've done all kinds of animal (laughs) styles, but nobody's been drunk and tried to fight before. Let's see what would happen. (laughs) It's just a high-functioning alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So was a wanderer and a panhandler who made his living performing martial arts and acrobatics in the streets of Guangdong with his younger sister. And during his exchange of ideas with other various Ten Tigers of Canton, it's said he encountered a young Wang Fei-Hung and tutored him in drunken boxing. Beggar So is portrayed by Yuan Sui Ten Qian. I'm sorry. <laughs> who played basically the same character in all but name in Snake and Eagle's Shadow, and then reprised the role of Beggar So in the spin-off films Dance of the Drunk Mantis, Story of Drunken Master, and World of the Drunken Master, the the last of which is just a cameo, but he kind of became known as Beggar So. And he was supposed to play the role again in... 1979's Magnificent Butcher, but he died as production of the film was just beginning in January of that year. His performance, though, was so iconic that it's become associated with the character in China, kind of similar to like how Bela Lugosi is known to Westerners as Dracula, despite tons of others portraying the character over the decades since. It's like, it's kind of like, who's your beggar so? And let's leave out uh when C Twen because he's the obvious answer. Who's your Dracula? Put Bela Lugosi to the side because that's the obvious one type of thing. Um and then fun fact, 
when you Wu Ping, the film direct, the film's director is when you send Su Tin's son. So that's where we talked about uh, when Wu Ping was trained by his dad in martial arts. That's Beggar So. Beggar So is training the director of this movie in in martial arts. Not until um, Surf Ninjas did we get a better son and father kung fu team. I mean, can't. There's a there's a failure to franchise deep cut for everyone. <laughs> Where there is not much surfing or ninjas. Yes, is my understanding. <laughs> I've been lied to. <laughs> uh, and much like Wong Fei Hung. The beggar so legend and, and character are so iconic in China that that many Hong Kong kung fu legends have taken on the role. This is Chow Yun Fat, Gordon Liu, Stephen Chow, Donnie Yen, uh, and again Stephen Chow is another guy we're gonna circle back around to. He is unfortunately maybe instrumental in getting Dragon Ball Evolution off the ground. And he also, though, has actually worked on a few different uh, Journey to the West films as well. So we'll probably tackle some of those maybe to, you know, once we do Dragon Ball Evolution and probably claim that basically everyone involved should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> maybe circle back around to like some one of his Journey to the West films and hopefully it's good and, you know, kind of give this guy some uh, some retribution. <laughs> Well, do do we have to wait until we till we review a Dragon Ball Evolution to just say that it's terrible and everyone involved should be feel bad? I feel like we could just say that. <laughs> what? Do you, how much does it kill you guys to know that's the only Dragon Ball thing I've seen from beginning to end? Oh God, that kills me so much. <laughs> um. So, as in keeping with the tradition of many things that we discuss, this movie has some complicated home video release and dubbing situations. In 2000, a DVD was released in the UK that has Mandarin instead of Cantonese and dub titles instead of accurate subtitles. However, this release contains deleted scenes and an interview with NC Young uh, not featured anywhere else. In 2002, a DVD was released in the US that included the Cantonese track, but over the decades, parts of this language track have become damaged to the point where they are beyond reasonable repair – uh, so during those segments, the movie simply reverts to English and utilizes dub titles. Uh, this features an audio commentary by Hong Kong film historian Jeff Yang, along with Rick Myers, uh, who wrote several books on the subject of Hong Kong kung fu films, which led to a UK show called The Incredibly Strange Film Show, running a documentary on Jackie Chan in 1989, which is maybe part of the reason why the actor gained notoriety in the UK. Moving ahead to 2004... Maya Entertainment uh, released a Hong Kong DVD that contains proper subtitles as well as the most complete Cantonese version of the film to date, with some brief uh, moments such as the opening redubbed and then other missing Cantonese moments set up as an option in the menu where the viewer can choose to watch them dubbed in Mandarin or just have them be excised from the film entirely and I guess watch in silence. <laughs> There exist bootlegs of the film with the complete Cantonese track uh, from earlier releases of the film, but for whatever reason, nobody officially releasing this film has ever bothered to, like, ask those people if they can get a copy of the complete Cantonese language track. Yeah, that's a that's a thing that happens in foreign films, unfortunately, over time is, you know, a a. a whatever official means of releasing the film gets damaged over time. And like you miss a few minutes here and there. And 
everyone just kind of becomes okay with it. And then decades later, some like private collector is like, hey, actually, you know, I have this thing and I'll just give it to you guys so that someone can release it. As long as you just like say thanks to Jim, the collector, for giving this to us. And the companies will be like, nah, it's not really worth it to us. Over credits? That seems. I, I mean, it's it's short. It's things really like that. There are more nuanced than that, but yeah, yeah, there are some collectors who like don't, for whatever reason, want to share their stuff, which I've never really understood. Um, which I think though is part of why this stuff takes a long time to surface. Is it's usually something like where there's this private collector who has this thing and they don't want to share it with anyone because they want to be the only person that has it for whatever reason. And then something happens to them. They, they die or they have to sell off their collection. And then a person who just wants this out for everyone comes across it and they're like, Hey, what if we just kind of gave this to people in some way and the studios don't want to just, give things to people that'd be ridiculous (laughs) so yeah so they end up just putting out bootlegs it's it's like we said earlier it's not a hard movie to see i mean you can find it a lot of streaming services i think there's just versions of it that i don't know if they fall into public domain but people just don't care enough to track them and it's on a lot of the free streaming services but if you are looking for like probably the best existing blu-ray of it right now at least at least official version and you're smart enough to have a region free blu-ray player which if you're like me and you're really into this genre you have to have a region free player um the eureka dragon bastard blu-ray eureka is a great uk company their kung fu releases are always awesome and uh, that's probably the best version you can get and you can get it for like not too but like the prices you can find online for, for american dollars not too bad so if if listening to us has made you want this on blu-ray and you want a really good version that's the one i'd point you towards um and also just we're in the like the climax of yeah. the movie at this point uh, bikini and i were talking offline a bit before we started recording the fights in this film and then especially just in this sequence are like they're so fresh for a viewer who is anyone who's viewing primarily hollywood films in the 2020s these are wide shots and they are filmed with very few cuts and the choreography is incredible and you just get to drink this in without a whole bunch of confusing edits and a whole bunch of trying to make it seem even cooler than it is which really ultimately just a lot of times makes it hard to follow and you're just allowed to watch these two guys just kind of go at each other it's it's really fantastic to watch the only thing that's like strange, like I totally agree. This and this fight is amazing. Um, I think strange for me and now going watch these earlier movies like this, Snake and Eagle Shadow, so the early young master. This fight's a great example of this, right? Is that as he got more into doing the more modern set movies and was really trying to revolutionize the genre, he kind of got out of this classic kung fu style where the, these fights are kind of slow. Do you guys know what I mean? Like they're 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 choreographed. The choreography is amazing. But the move set is like somebody does a move, then the person does the next move, then the person does the next move. And it's obviously they want to show off the choreography. Like it looks like a chess match kind of where each move deliberately leads into the next. And Jackie would eventually kind of break away from this and his fights would start to be really, really fast paced. 
and people wouldn't fight with this kind of like step 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 move move like kind of pace it would go much faster and so that's just again him trying to get out of what was kind of the norm at the time i kind of prefer like the more intense like really like chaotic almost hard to follow martial arts that we see in more modern styles like in films like the raid and and like i said more in some more jackie's more modern movies but it's still like it's really fun to watch here and it's a nice throwback style and that this movie is a really nice marriage of like what jackie would become and the old school martial arts traditions that he was you know obviously still influenced by as a boy it's I, a, it's a brush of it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's is... it's like a palate cleanser almost, especially like you said, if, if watching like you know Marvel movies and stuff like that. Um, it just it, it's it. I mean, it's it. They call it choreography for a reason. It's almost like a beautiful dance, really, that you're yeah. watching. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. Like these these fights in these movies definitely feel like dances because you can just. I guess what I'm trying to say is you can tell how practiced they are, right? Nothing yeah, about them. Yeah. Nothing about them seems off the cuff and in the moment, and that's fine. Like it's it's it, it's showing off the skill of the performers more than it's like worried about feeling like a real fight. As we're wrapping up, though, because I mean, like I said, we could just keep saying, "Oh, this fight's awesome," but in these final <laughs> moments, it's just a fight. And then, like the best kung fu movies, I think Jelly's probably heard me say this before. Like one of my favorite things in movies is like just an abrupt ending. And this movie definitely does that. He wins the fight and it just says the end and we're out of there. What's going on with the other bad guys? Are they digging up those graves? There's a whole subplot. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. The fight's over. Who cares? (laughs) Plot Um, resolution. Who cares about that? Yeah, whatever. I love like Hong Kong movies are the best at just sudden abrupt endings. Um, But as we're wrapping up, it's probably a good time to talk about this film's cultural impact because it extends beyond just the fact that there's imitators, ripoffs, sequels, spinoffs. This movie was such a huge hit. You said it doesn't not only makes him a star, but it has this larger cultural impact. I mean, in the 80s, his hairstylist movie, I know I dunked on it a little bit earlier, but uh, it does become very, very popular across Asia, being adopted by both men and women, who it probably looks better on. Um, in 2013, Edgar Wright's The World's End features drunken pub scenes that Wright has said were influenced by Drunken Master and which were choreographed by members of Jackie Chan's stunt team. In particular, I believe he probably worked with Brad Allen on that, who was... We unfortunately lost uh, last year, who was a great uh, stunt performer and action choreographer. Um, so now th- I'm going off of some notes that I was supplied to me here, and people are going to be like, wow, Trevor suddenly <laughs> knows a lot about this stuff. No, I don't, but I'm going to read this for all of you. Uh, <laughs> in addition to Dragon Ball, and you guys have been very, very helpful in pointing out a lot of the connections there already, but the, the Naruto series, I've heard of it, uh, it features characters who perform drunken fist-style fighting, uh, renamed Loopy Fist in English, to make the manga more palatable for children. Good old the censorship. Film, yeah. Yeah, this movie does have a very... Uh, we, that's something we didn't talk about Let's wait, very quickly. This movie does have a very odd uh, message about alcohol. You know, just saying, like, <laughs> you can be better at what you do when you're drunk. You know, so... Um, <laughs> at least with Drunken Master 2 ends... Uh, at least if you see the uncut version of Drunken Master 2, ends on a very funny um, note about that. Uh, this film's influence is felt in video games as well. Uh, Radical Entertainment made a game with the input of Jackie Chan called Jackie Chan Stuntmaster, in which you can wear the outfit from Drunken Master as one of the costumes. The Tekken video game series features a character, Lai, Wai, Lei, sorry, Lei Wu Long, who is mostly based off of the police story films, but whose ultimate stance is Drunken Fist. In Dead or Alive 3, the character Brad Wong specializes in Drunken Fist and was taught by a character named Chen. And the Mortal Kombat franchise features a character named Bo Ray Cho, who specializes in drunken style. So people love to put drunken style in video games. And why? And of course they do, because it's so fun to look at. You know, it's you just start laughing. But also it is a thing where it's, it's funny, but also it kind of does seem badass. So I don't I'm not surprised people want to use it all the time. 
Um, yeah. Even the world of music has been impacted by this film. The reggae band, the Revolutionaries, who helped pioneer the rocker style of reggae, they recorded and released a song called Drunken Master that has snippets from the film featured as audio samples uh, by the dubstep artist Funkcase. So, yeah, definitely a big kind of cultural impact here. Yeah, it's and we're getting right into the just the the last little bit of this movie, but yeah, it's it this is a movie that kind of revolutionized an industry. And it it's it's always funny when you when you go back and look at those kinds of movies where they might not be the best example of that. And I, the the one that jumps immediately to mind I guess kind of the two that that go in in a tandem almost like Halloween and the original Friday the 13th where yeah no movie after those two really is exactly like either of those two and especially it's kind of one of those th- things where like most of the movies like the the original Friday the 13th is kind of more riffing on the success of Halloween but it's also a giallo movie Every movie that comes after is actually ripping off Friday the 13th a little more so than Halloween, even though Halloween's kind of the better one. And 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 it just kind of reminds me of that, right? Where, like, you go back and you look at those movies, and neither one of them is really, like, the quintessential perfect example. Oh, the movie's over, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the story is not, but the movie is. Batman uh, is dead. The end. Neither neither one of them is the quintessential slasher movie. But and it's similar to this where like because this doesn't have that like new completely new blend of martial arts in it, it still is holding a lot back on its history or or what it what came before it, similar to like Friday the 13th. Because that takes so long to reveal who the killer is, it's still playing a lot on Jalo movies. But but you that is the demarcation point. This is the demarcation point for martial arts films, where they become more and more slapstick and they become funnier, and the martial arts style pivots away from Bruce Lee. I want to I like make one that. Last, Every once in a while, I was pointing out things in the movie that I thought were kind of very notable for their their differences from what came before. And the very end of the movie, also, I want to point out the moment where the final victory, um, Wang Fei Hung gets on the shoulders of Thunderlegs and does two moves to him. Right, the one he puts, he grabs his Adam's apple, and we cut to the training that he's been doing of showing how he can crack walnuts with his fingers. And we, he, so he does that. He does that to Thunderlegs' throat, right, and cracks his throat like that, you know, mm-hmm. breaking his neck. And then he does like kind of the bull move and kind of twists his head. Now, you have to remember, this movie comes out in 1978. This is a time where the kung fu genre has become, you know, pretty bloody. The Shaw Brothers movies are known for the excessive blood. And, you know, you have people strike certain points in the body and the blood would spray out. I, I, I want to bring this up because I think it really speaks to the confidence of Jackie Chan and Yun Wu Ping. But, but Jackie in particular, since this movie is really coming from his brain a lot. I think... The, playing this movie to a certain audience at the time, any almost any other kung fu movie at the time with those two moves, those would have been super gory moments. When he like cracks the walnut of the guy's throat, I can't believe for a moment that it doesn't have the blood spray out of the guy's neck. 
And when he like twists his scalp, it's very surprising that they didn't have blood there. And I think it's for it's two things, right? First of all, Jackie wants this to be a more family friendly movie. He's making a comedy, right? Yes, he's telling you to drink to almost death, but other than that, <laughs> it's a family film. But I, I, it speaks to his confidence too of saying, I don't need the the, the money shot of the gore at the end. People are going to be entertained enough by the comedy and by how great this fight was that I can just actually end it without the the gratuitous violence. So it's it just shows right away. He's like, I'm not going to trade in on the easy violence and the easy blood. I don't need that for for what I do. Mm-hmm. And I just I just had wrap up with a few more notes that I had here. Yeah. Um, just Dean Sheck, who played the professor, the the Kai Shin, who was the guy who was. Constantly torturing uh, Jackie Chan into into doing his martial arts. This guy wound up having 70 credits to his name and then retired from acting in 91 and became a real estate guy. Like, he just became a successful real estate seller. The film's main antagonist, uh, Huang Jingli, and he was creator of some of the movie the, the movie's martial arts techniques... Retired from acting in the 90s and goes on to being, this is this is wild one, he's a golf tee manufacturer. <laughs> Alright, I wouldn't have pictured that. And he winds up like returning to TV later in life and appearing in, in a, a documentary about his life in 2014. But like, that is definitely one of those things of people like me, but in China, I'm sure, saying, how did this guy who went from being the antagonist of one of our, like, favorite movies of all time go to being a golf team manufacturer? <laughs> and then Charlie Way, the the character who gets killed in the beginning of the movie, who is also Chan Kwok Way, depending on which version of the movie you're, you're watching, is played by a brother of Yuan Yuping, and therefore a son of Yuan Xu Tin, who also, his name was Wen, Wen Shun Yi. He becomes moderately successful in, in Hollywood or, or in general. He, he's the, the court fight choreographer for the, for the Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in China series, as well as Iron Monkey and Dance of the Drunken Mantis. And then, on that family note again, another son slash brother, who's Yuan Cheung Yan, he has no real part in this film, or at least that was documented. And that's kind of the thing is these these guys who were all kind of family and friends and brothers who were working together would just like he I'm sure even though he has no credited part on this film, he was probably around the set. But Chung Yan also becomes a fight choreographer, and actually in Hollywood, and he works with his brother Wu Ping on the Matrix films, as well as McGee's Charlie's Angels films, which I think are like a sort of, I'll say maybe guilty pleasure of yours, Trev. I don't believe I don't in the know term if guilty even... pleasure. I just I I like the McGee Charlie's Angels movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 2004, he actually plays a beggar character in Kung Fu Hustle in. I don't know, I'm just guessing maybe this was like a bit of an homage or a bit of a poking fun or whatever at his father's role, though his character is like way less savory than Beggar So. He doesn't have like a redemptive arc or any of that kind of stuff to him, but I just wonder if if it was kind of like a, oh, hey, my dad was like this drunken beggar character. I'm going to I'm gonna get to do that too. That'll be fun. It's like a Stan Lee cameo, <laughs> but dirtier. 
<laughs> I was gonna say it was like uh, when Robert Downey Jr.'s son got busted for drugs. It's like my dad did this, so. <laughs> um, but so that's Drunken Master, and that is I really enjoy it. It's it's wild because like like Trev mentioned at the top, this is like the kind of movie where you you almost could do a screen specific for every minute of the screen commentary because you especially if you used like some clever editing tricks to like mix in the the audio of the movie when it gets a little bit more talky you could play this almost exactly like wrestler commentary because there is so much action packed into this hour and 50 minute movie yeah i'm and I think a lot of people are so much more used to like a movie that hits that about two hour mark, especially because you got to think this is a movie that would hit that two hour mark because it's credits or it's end of movie and we're done. There's no credits, <laughs> which modern movies have at least eight, nine minutes of credits. So this would hit that two hour mark. We're so much more used to movies having like long sequences of exposition and very, very brief fight sequences. And this movie is like fight sequences and very brief exposition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I think it's awesome. It's not. For me, its only problem is that it is, in my mind, eclipsed by the sequel. I, as I said, I think Drunken Master 2 is actually Jackie Chan's masterpiece. And I would just definitely point people towards that movie. If they, if they listen to us in this one and they watch us enjoy it, do yourself the favor of checking out his sequel. It is, it's just incredible. And the fight sequences in that, I don't, I don't think he's ever done better. And, and for me also, I kind of tend to like the stuff that he, like his later stuff, um, you know, once he gets the, the post-police story as opposed to the young master snake and eagle shadow and drunken masters period. Cause I, I think it's interesting to see him trying to revolutionize the genre and break free of it. But I'm more interested in what he does once he has broken free of it and he's made it his own more fully. That all said, this movie still rips. And I will say really quickly, I promise I don't want to leave. I don't want to be like this movie. I don't want to leave plot points unresolved. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I would mention what my issue is with dragon ball. <laughs> People are probably like waiting. Like what's this <laughs> son of a bitch? Um, <laughs> And it does tie kind of in the movie because you're talking about this, this movie is like all action. And I know. So here Jelly might be wondering because I've told him and I'm sure you, you've you heard this complaint before. Uh, can you like my thing with Dragon Ball is anytime I would dip into it as a kid, I would try to feel like a 30 minute. And I was like, oh, all right. I mean, like, is there some story here? And I know. So I know what <laughs> I'm, I'm fully aware. I'm probably being very unfair. And I know there's a large mythology and I just probably caught the wrong things. Um, but I'm sure there's some level of truth to that, but I was definitely put off by like these like multi-episode fight scenes. And, th but then you might be wondering, well, well, then why do you like a two hour movie? That's all fight scenes. And I have to admit, and this is probably where I'm going to lose a lot of points and I just can't help it. And I hope you can understand this on some level. I love watching live action martial arts. Animated martial arts is not the most exciting thing for me. Cause I think what's really exciting about martial arts is seeing the choreography, seeing performers really put themselves through it. And when I watch animated fights, I'm kind of just watching what people drew. So I don't know. It doesn't really have the same pull for me. And I know I probably just made everyone super mad. But uh, I'll, I will at some point give Drunken Master another try since you guys were kind enough to have me on this episode. And I really loved this conversation and, and I appreciate it. So I'll, I'll give it another go. I promise. That's good to hear. I'll just say 
for anyone out there who's who's maybe listening to this and is not a Dragon Ball fan, you're not entirely wrong, but it does kind of very depend. And I would as we've been going through now we've we've released at this point, we are up through in terms of our releases, we just recently the last episode we covered was very early in the Tian Shinhan tournament which is we're only like four or five arcs into dragon ball at this point because there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting culture to talk about like we talked about on this podcast about wong fei hung that is stuff i would never have known or cared about i i do think it's actually interesting but i would never have known that as just a person coming to drunken master and just watching the movie that's what we do on this podcast. So if you're coming to the Drunken Master commentary and you've listened to us for this long and you're wondering, like, why should I listen to the rest of your Dragon Ball podcast? That's what we try to do. We try to peel back the layers of, like, why does this fight scene or this technique that a guy knows or this hermit or this cat character or this this bean, this magical bean, why, why does that matter? Why is that interesting? Here's the culture that has gone into it. So in addition to to maybe if you give a cheap plug to our own podcast and say if you went back and kind of listened to us, that might kind of kind of get you interested in what's going on in Dragon Ball. I would say the manga is is much faster clipped in terms of like it doesn't have those, you know, it doesn't get bogged down so much, and that is a that is an issue. We we had a whole episode about filler, and we probably will have more, frankly. But we had a whole episode about filler and how it's necessary, and why it's necessary, and what what leads to filler, and what makes the difference between good filler and bad filler. And it when you get into what I'm sure, Trev, I'm like almost one hundred percent sure where you probably dipped into Dragon Ball as a younger person and found it very lacking in pacing. Bikini, that's got to be Namek and Frieza, yeah, right? Um, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. And so what might be more interesting to you is actually the, the earlier stuff, frankly. Yeah. The more culturally interesting stuff, the, more, the, the, the less padded for runtime, the less fight centric stuff the, the, and the, the stuff fights that's, that it's actually a more directly inspired by drunken master to be in all yeah, honesty it's actually the stuff that takes a lot more from this movie and movies of this type that are more humorous like the fights are pretty quick themselves there's usually like and some kind of slapstick element to them a lot of yeah times. and it's all more propulsive and then when you do get filler in the early dragon ball like there's a there's a whole filler bunch of episodes that that bikini and i just talked about where like one of them is like a 22 minute version very surface level but it's like a 22 minute version of like seven samurai through a dragon ball lens yeah then there's like the one that's like a 22 minute like disney feature almost <laughs> with the uh, inoshika cho and we do get some fun stuff out of it to be honest uh the like the inoshika cho i think was a, a pretty fun one all right, I will write that down, and I, like I said, I, maybe I will give it another shot. And you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll watch. I'll start with Dragon Ball Evolution. I'll watch that again. And I'll see if that. <laughs> oh, see now if he's that, just twisting the knife. I'll see if that grabs me, and then it's like when I tell like um, when people like try to get me into like Avatar, and I'm always like, oh yeah, well, I'll start with the Shyamalan movie. I've seen. I know that's the best. <laughs> <adaptation>, so. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 
Um, killing me. So what we do, and this this is a this is this is always tough, but we rate movies or stories or whatever out of seven because there are seven Dragon Balls. I gotcha. And there's no halves. Is the other thing because you can't cut a Dragon Ball in half. Okay. Well, I'll let so, you guys go first so I can get a sense of what you're thinking. But I think I have my my number in mind. But I'll, I'll hear what you guys how you guys rationalize it. All right, I'll I'll go first. I loved this movie, even though this is only my second time watching it. The uh, first time I was instantly captivated. The choreography is amazing and wonderful, and everybody should give it a shot because I think it's entertaining whether you like action films or not. I love the weird tone of this movie. The comedy's great. Uh, the focus on excessive drinking is making you a better fighter is hilarious to me. Overall, just a, a rollicking good time. I give this one. Uh, six out of seven Dragon Balls. I'm. I think I'm right there with you. I again, really fun, really comedic. As a as a Dragon Ball fan too, I I love just the little things, right? The 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 food sequence that is so Goku, and just the little things with with Beggar So that kind of remind me of Roshi and the 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 unique training and. And even I know that he is that that uh, Wong Fei Hung, Jackie Chan's character is definitely skewed more annoying little pissant than Goku <laughs> is. But the similar idea of this character who, by virtue of his attitude, kind of disarms you a little bit. And makes you think he's not taking things seriously. And maybe he even isn't, but he also it's not to it's not intentionally always to disrespect you. It's just kinda who he is. I think that's a fun dynamic to play with. I am also at a six out of seven Dragon Balls. I would put this, you know, as a as a I cheat always and say how many out of five I would do. I'm at like a solid, solid four out of five. This is interesting because you guys brought me on because I was the big Jackie Chan fan. I'm going to go a little lower than both of you, but but not too much. I would <laughs> I would say I'm at a five. I'm at five Dragon Balls, and I, I say it because if you're telling me to, to the baseline is seven, then I know what I would set as a seven is for me. Drunken Master Two is a seven, and then there are other martial arts movies that are like perfection to me that I would put it a seven. And I think why this focuses down to or comes down to five for me is that I think it's really really good. I think it's really strong. It's just everything I alluded to before. I think there are if I was going to my shelf to grab a Kung Fu movie, this isn't going to be one I reach for often. If I'm going to reach for a Jackie Chan movie, I think he perfected this even more later on. And I also think it's still a little representative of him in a still working in a mode that he's break out of a little bit. If that makes sense. All right. Well, I'm going to go watch drunken master two now based on that recommendation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, drunk master two, it's, it's not, it's not like the, that's the thing. It's, it just feels like, it was at the time like sold as like a return to form for him because it's him going back to that like traditional period setting, which he'd only been doing more modern set movies at that point. But mm-hmm. you'll see it feels a little bit more modern. It's got a little bit more story, but I think the fights as wall to wall act as this one. But I think the character work is better. Fight scenes are incredible and you get some more of the, the you know, stunt work, which we didn't have in this one as much because that wasn't really becoming his thing yet. So I, I just think Drunken Master 2 is uh, a revelation. But yeah. 
so you you cut out a little bit on my end, but you were at like a five, yeah, out of seven five. on this one. Yeah, you'd five say? out of yeah. seven. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's that's Drunken Master, and we really appreciate Trev for coming on with yes, us, despite thank you very much, you know, not being a big Dragon Ball fan. We'll forgive him this time. <laughs> and uh, you know, we like I said before, check out uh, Failure to Franchise. It is uh, this maybe. I don't know, faint praise or not meaningful praise coming from someone who listens to like four podcasts, but (laughs) it is my favorite podcast. I feel like every time I tune in, I learn something new about either the movie you're talking about or movies in general. I think that's awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. It's a great show. Yeah, unfortunately we will because Hollywood's going to keep making shitty (laughs) franchises. Yeah, it seems like it's stop. their only business plan at this point. I've been doing something I don't normally do when we record. I've been drinking quite a bit throughout this episode, so <laughs> makes sense. Uh, so will I sober up next time? Will we cover something just as fun as Drunken Master? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 